yeah, but, but I, I, I don't it just know. comes out of you. And yeah. How does he retain that? I take that as a compliment. I don't yeah. know how I don't know how much of a compliment that is. Sorry. That actually agitates me a little bit. It's like Slumdog Millionaire. Have you ever seen that film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. way every question, the answer relates to some part of his life, and he's able to tell you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I know stuff, I'm able to tell you how I know that. I ring Calvin instead of googling stuff. Yeah. He <laughs> rang me one day before, and he goes, "Do you remember that film and blah blah blah?" And I was like, "You know, you just could have googled this instead of ringing me and asking me the question." He goes, "I trust you more than Google." He said, <laughs> "It's a true story. I just ring Calvin for everything I do." I two things before coming here. I wasn't to wear anything in New Balance because it hurt yeah, when he was yeah, initiated. Yeah, yeah, you're on the ball, Richie. And I cleaned me runners. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're on the ball. See that? That's a man I, doing his homework. I can't come in with filthy runners. They've <laughs> never been cleaned ever. <laughs> Is that not? Something that we're contributing to society to make the world a better place. Uh, People cleaning it, their runners. It's your gift. Do you know what I mean? One has. step at a time, this podcast is going to make the world a better place. <laughs> yeah. But can I just say as well, so you met Terrence a couple of weeks ago. He's done he's our own podcast together. It's called Episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Since then, he started drinking sparkling water. I am in possession of a bottle of sparkling water right here. He never used to drink sparkling water. So what have you done to me co-host? I like an old sparkling water now. I don't know what it is. Do you know what? I got sent out a little package from well canned water. That's what it was, right? And I drank all the still waters over here. Yeah? And one night I was parching, right? And I thought I had a still water left and I had and I was like, bollocks, only the sparkling left. I was just, they were just there for designing the gaff. So I opened it and I drank and it wasn't bad. What? You don't... It's like drinking pins and needles. So you've drank it? I've tasted it. I wouldn't say I've drank it. I've tasted it unbeknownst to me. Do you know when you take a sip and you're like, ah, oh, bollocks, that's sparkling water. <laughs> Do you ever see that picture and it's a fella crawling through the desert and the table says water and then in the next picture it says sparkling water and your man crawls past it. <laughs> <laughs> but this is like a reoccurring theme on this podcast. We said this from the start, like sparkling water. You've been, con- you've been consistent. Yeah, and then Terrence just throws me under the bus and he's like, no, what are you drinking now? See, I'm growing, I'm expanding. You're not growing, you're middle class. open-minded. You're evolving as a human. Yes. He's not, he's just yes. middle class. He lives in Stony Bata and Here drinks coke. More classism, more classism. <laughs> Creeping but in. This is the thing, Richie. He gives me stick. He says that I forget myself. I'm not, I forget where I come from. I have a coffee machine and all. He Literally. drinks sparkling water. Coffee machine and made seven holidays a year, 15 pairs of runners a year. He likes only batter, coconut lattes. And sparkling water is enough. Sparkling water. What else do you do? No, that's it. A podcast. Reiki. <laughs> I don't do Reiki. I've done Reiki. Have you bad. done Reiki? Have you ever done Reiki? I have. A friend of my wife's does it. Mm. I don't know anything about it. I've never done it. What was your? I had an unbelievable experience with it. What what happened? You just lie there. You just lie there, and somebody, whoever the Reiki master is, (laughs) (laughs) and you call Reiki masters. (laughs) I I think they are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they just, I I can't even explain what happened to my one because you actually are they touching you? No. So it's just your energy or your yeah something. Yeah, they just hover their hands over you. 
certain parts of your body, your head, your chest, and right down you. And I don't know. No, I've done it. Sorry, I've done it. <laughs> you either have, you have them, Richie. <laughs> <laughs> I went to see a woman in Monkstown and I was lying there and she didn't touch me. Yeah. I think I fell asleep. Though. It sounds like a non-consensual massage. That's what that is. <laughs> like, I'm going to give you a massage, but I won't touch you because you won't let me. One of them. That's what, like. so what was the impact in you? Did it work? Yeah. Whatever worked. Yeah, I felt like I was tripping. I thought, do you know how bad it was? How bad, um, when I say bad, I don't mean how strong it was. I thought she spiked me because she gave me a cup of cacao. Know what cacao is? I've heard of it. Yeah, I couldn't give you any. I was hoping you didn't say, yeah, what is it? <laughs> I'm sure I get slaughtered if I did now. Like, I don't actually, generally don't know what it is. It's like what hot is it? chocolate, isn't it? It's, yeah, but it's, it's a form of cocoa. from like fucking Colombia or something that comes in. Comes house. from South America, yeah. It's like, it's like chocolate. Like, like so chocolate. when you say, I thought I was spiked, I'm assuming were you, you dizzy, you were disoriented, you were something <clears throat> other than... Yeah, yeah, I sober. felt trippy. I felt like being moyant. I felt like, cause, but again as well, I never just sit down and think about shit and that. Do you get me? So I had an hour to lie down and do nothing, and someone is just hovering over me, and I just had time to think. So I don't know whether that's why my mind start drifting. But I was getting all I, Richie. This sounds mad. I was getting all these mad visions and all. Hard to explain. I have to give a shout out to Martina as well. Now that we're on the topic, can you explain the visions? Yeah, I'll explain one to you, yeah? Because I remember telling you this. So one of the visions was, right? Now, I don't know whether it was just my imagination or whatever, yeah? But I was, like, walking through this, like, jungle, right? As a kid. And I was screaming. What age were you? Young, I'd say, looking at myself, and it could have been eight, nine, ten, around that age. And I was calling for my brothers. And I felt felt afraid. Like, I felt afraid in real life, do you get me? So like when you think back on something and you're, like, getting embarrassed. I would think back on the time and something hurt and you can nearly feel you. Like, oh, like, I was, I remember lying there feeling like, oh, what the fuck is going on? Like, a bit fair or something. And that was just one of the visions. And I'd never been in a jungle before, so I don't know why I was in a jungle. I don't know why I was going around calling me brother's names. But it was just this mad vision I had. So I, I thought assume, I got I assume someone here now should say, did the jungle represent something? Is the jungle the symbolic? concrete jungle? Is that the you grew jungle up? symbolic of something? And when you were eight or nine, what was going on? Don't know. So we're getting very deep here. Yeah, we <laughs> are. Let's start shopping, Richie. Don't threaten me with a good time. I love a good cry. I love a good. I have cried in the podcast, yeah. But uh, I don't. I the talk, safe space. Go for yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> trying to lure me in content. Um, yeah, I don't know what the crack was, but I had loads of mad little visions like that. I remember. Now, after I was sobbing and all, after the rake, you know, yeah. And I was snotting and all. Do you ever have one of them cries? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <gasps> one of them, you're snotting and all. So did you go back? No. Would you go back? Will you go back? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a good experience. Not because it was a bad experience. It's because I don't want to be like that, you get me? I'm happy just floating through life as it is. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Don't be bringing me into the trenches like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> Right, lads, singers. Come on. Oh. Have you got one for us? No, you I'm want singers. Like, you can't do that. You can't hear us in your nah, I thought listeners or yous come up with singers. I'm, I have a yoke in my head. Come on. Shout out to Ryan O'Brien for this as well. So he said to me, I told him we had you on today, and he says to me, ask him this question. So we've had a couple of footballers on the podcast, right? I hope I don't miss anyone, yeah? 
Keith Tracy, Jack Bourne, Graham Book, Giff Forrester, Ross Turney. I'm Ross Turney. I'd like to think that's all of them, yeah? Mm. If I missed anyone, I'm sorry if you listen. Did you get all the names I said? I know a couple of them, mate. Who's the best footballer of all of Ah, come on. That's not a zinger. No, I'm not asking you That's who's not the, a zinger. I'm not asking you who's the worst. So that'd be different. If I said name them and name me the worst, I'm only asking you which one is the best out of all them. Okay, so I haven't seen Olivia play. Okay. Seen Key Tracy, Jack Byrne, I know what he's like in his best days, and Forrester's just one player of the year, is he? Yeah. Graham Book's also a great player. Uh, I'm going to go with Jack. What he, what he can do on his best day is off the chart. Mm. I went with Jack as well. Mind you, Forrester. Get is mm. sensational. I can't the look. things he can do. Calvin, you'll just keep sipping your water since I asked that question. Mm. Do you have a view? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, like I, I agree. Everything is a saying there, lads. Yeah, like look, they're all talented uh, footballers. Let's make no mistake about that. You know what I mean? They've all. Uh, so there's no stupid zingers basically coming. Yeah. Well, they are pissing the yeah. show, Richie. I knew that question. <laughs> yeah. You know what? We haven't said that in a long time, Richie. We forgot. Like that. That kind of just fizzle out. I don't. You don't. I think you're a lawyer, Richie. The question is, do I? Mm. Which means, currently, is that something I do? Mm. The answer is no, and that's an honest question. So something you have. You're asking me, have I ever done it? Yeah. I would assume there was a dressing room in the Millwall training ground and. All sorts went on in it. Pissing in the showers was the least Fuck. headline grabbing thing. In hell. Good luck. Come on. I won't say anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Two lads leaning forward. Yeah, just thinking of the headlines, yeah. <laughs> Next question. Yeah. <laughs> but that's something that we yeah, we used to ask every guest and that just kinda went Did to the they Answer honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Some people got embarrassed and tried to like skew past them. We were like, look, it's a it's a human thing. I know how many people said no. I was a handful. It was like, not many. And would they all fair afterwards say, no, same they, answer? They would keep trying to deny it, but we know the line. We know your line as well. So you're the fourth to say <laughs> what, do you think, what do you think my answer was there? Oh, no, you, you're pissing this shit out, Richie. I, I don't currently. You have I a public image that you're teenager. trying to uphold here. That's what it is. Yeah. You, so you, don't, you don't believe what I'm saying? You yeah. can't say yeah because you're on the RTE panel and all. Yeah. Do you get me? You can't be like, yeah, yeah we pissing the shower and then go on and start talking about it. I'd say he needs to track back more and they're going to be like, hold on a minute, you pissing the shower? <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? I've admitted to a lot of things publicly that... Uh, worse than that. I'm still on the panel. <laughs> <laughs> I've survived. <laughs> That's a fair point. Calvin, you never, you never uh, said who you think the best player is. Yeah, it's it's awkward for you because you've all had them as guests. Yeah, but so now you all. have to insult for them. Yeah, and we know them all personally as well. Yeah, they're, they're, but in fairness, they are all excellent players. Everyone of them, yeah. Olivia included. Like but Olivia. it's all a hypothetical thing because you're like on their best day, and you're like, well, yeah. how often is his best day? Mm. Does one player have more best days than you? Know? So you're basing it off potential, then, or you're basing it off that solid facts. Who has the most Ireland caps? Graham. That you know Ryan also said that to me earlier. Does Graham has more caps? Graham has the game. most caps, yeah. Olivia, surely, is she not? Well Olivia does, yeah. Yeah, well yeah, definitely. But I mean relation to other lads. But Olivia's included, so mm. if our base don't have caps, Olivia is top with Graham second. Oh, yeah, Jack is a baller though, isn't he? Jack is sensational. 
He really is. He's sensational. He's just had a, a bad year, hasn't he, really, yeah. with injuries? And Without stuff. being disrespectful to the league of Ireland, he is too good for the league of Ireland, in my opinion. Everyone, now I'm only watching the league about 10, 15 years, but people who've been watching it decades say he's the best has ever been in the league. Mm. He's usually someone who gets to a certain level, leaves, but he somehow stayed there for a couple of seasons and absolutely blew everyone out of the water. Yeah. Brilliant. Mm. I'll go with Jack as well, then, yeah. So no stupid singers, basically, no? Oh, and give us one from the bonus episodes. We've we've definitely had a few dodgy ones in the last few weeks. Owen's gonna pull up yeah. Owen's gonna pull one up for us here. And only because Richie is so consistent on getting one. Like Yeah, give him I don't want this chat to be all about me. I want the zingers to Well you're the guest Richie. Talk down the clock. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bored of talking about myself. <laughs> Does he not have a list? I would assume there's a list you go through. No, we literally just pull them out of the bag mm. on the day and just go ah. And we try not reuse any of the old ones as well. We used to put them out as a poll on Instagram and then get the results. So we do them twice and have a new zinger and we kind of just grew up, Richie. Like, we matured. Yeah, <laughs> we can't keep doing this heavy bleeding week. And then Euro, the second guest who's ever sat there drinking sparkling water. I'll give you a thousand euro if you can guess who the other guest was. Thousand euro. 500 cash off me and Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> cash is Give well. me three names and I'll pick the right one. No, he's, he's, he'll <laughs> definitely get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I only sent me a zing out in the meantime. Just tell him who it was. It was Coolio. You know Coolio? Me and Coolio. You and Coolio. Yeah, Coolio yeah. We're always coupled together, me and him. <laughs> <laughs> Sick of being compared to him. Right, here's a zinger. <laughs> right? Oh my God, Owen. Right. Okay. Would you rather say everything you're thinking to everyone? What? So, so no, oh. it's a strong no to that one. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, so that's a no. <laughs> so whatever you come next with is a yes. Is that wrong? correct, though? Because I don't think I'm reading that proper. So he said, would you rather say everything you're thinking to everyone you meet or talk to unfiltered or never say anything at all? Ever. So you're, you're mute for the rest of your life. Oh, yes, yeah. Yes. Or you are just off the top of It's all out there. Um, yeah, here it is. Okay, so mute doesn't sound like it's any crack. But if you say everything, I'm going to lose all my jobs. Yeah, you'll never be on the RTE panel again. <laughs> I'm not saying that's your life. I'm just saying, like, that's... No, gone. I'm, no one's going to hire me as their therapist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never on the telly again. I'll never be on a podcast. In fact, I'd be a really good guest on a podcast because I say yeah. the maddest shit. Yeah. yeah. So that's your life, basically, you're a serial podcast guest. Just like having Theo Vaughn there. Yeah, you're just like Andrew Tate then, really, aren't you? That's why all he does is bounce around podcast to podcast, isn't it? I think I would have to go with mute. And I just communicate, I text everyone. I come up with some clever way of communicating. Well, sign language. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. There's, no, there's, there's always a way. Well, as Ronan Keaton once said, you say it best when you say nothing at all. <laughs> uh, and then the, the other one that I sent in was, how would you stop turning to rubbing all the pens in Argos? <laughs> <laughs> Not possible. There's, a, there's an ongoing uh, conspiracy theory that really put Argos out of business. But I yeah. thought I was in Argos two weeks ago. Obviously, you know what? Argos left Ireland. It's gone now. a while, I think. Yeah, and yeah. he said he was in Argos. <laughs> he came over to him today. I was in Argos. <laughs> he said he was in there two weeks ago. <laughs> I don't know where I was. 
Have you, have you seen Sven now? <laughs> so, this, so this is it now. So like, does, a, does a commission bid help to find out where the <laughs> So what's in the oil like where Argos was? I, I thought I was looking at the pens at all. I don't know. I think I could be losing my marbles, Richie. I was convinced I was in Argos two weeks ago. The boys told me it's not there anymore. It's not there a while, actually, to be honest with you. So I don't, I don't know where it all went wrong. We have one more thing for you, Richie. We know you love this, yeah? Would you rather... Yeah, that's a good one, Alan, yeah? Would you rather lose all your memories or never be able to make new ones? Now, that's a little bit deep. I'm actually intrigued to hear your answer to this, Richie. Because you have one of them deep minds. <laughs> so, let me tease it. Lose all my memories. Lose them. So, it's just an empty head. Yeah, There's nothing head. in there. Factory reset. You're starting from scratch. So, I've no conversation. You mentioned a holiday. I can't. You don't know I don't what remember if I've yeah. ever been on one. Yeah. The very first ever memory will be sitting here on the Talking Bollocks podcast. That'll so, this is, this day, is day one, one of my yeah. life. And can I, if I wake up tomorrow, will I remember today? Yeah. Yes. So it's just like uh, the men in black thing, the yeah. flashy yeah. thing. Exactly up what today. it is. Yeah. So do I get that? Yeah. Flashy thing. Or yeah. what's the next one? Can't make memories. What does that mean? You can't make new ones. So does that mean from now on I will never remember what I do? Yeah. yeah. Your last memory will be here. This will be a force in your last memory. It's basically what Alzheimer's is, isn't it? Is it? It's how Alzheimer's works. You don't really remember recent. It's just all long-term memories. Okay, I'd forget everything up until now. Reason, I have a kid now. Yeah. And I don't want to not remember whatever happens between me and him from now on. Yeah. Mm. So I'd have to sacrifice the first 11 months of his life as long as I remember the rest of it. Yeah. There you go, that's my answer. That's a great answer. Isn't it? But Brilliant that was answer. the deep mind that the company <clears throat> is. You wouldn't have thought like that, you know what I mean? What would you have gone for? I don't know. I think, no, I think you picked the right answer. The first 11 months of a child is boring, really, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? Like, they just sleep and chill and get yeah, sick and all. until they're, like, eight months old, <laughs> Yeah, they? they can't see Ant for, like, two months anyway. So they're seeing yeah. shapes, like, and shadows. Like. And then they become killed. That's why I don't get young when people are like, ah, oh, look, he's smiling at daddy. He doesn't even know what you look like. You're <laughs> the blob. <laughs> you have a child, don't you? I do, yeah. I have an eight-year-old. Hey, well. Mm. I'm an elf, is he? I'm, I think I'm older than you. <laughs> I know I don't look it. <laughs> You're not. No, I'm an eight-year-old, yeah. Wow. So, yeah. it's all ahead of you. Feels ah. good saying that to someone who's older than me, though, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, Everyone's yeah, saying yeah. it to me, it's all ahead of you. <laughs> right, Richie, I think we're done with singers. Right, we're just trying to prolong the inevitable, time. aren't you? Yeah. Right. So, Richie, with every guest, take us back to the start. Where you come from and what was life like growing up? So I'm from a housing estate called Broadford, which is in Ballantyre. Um, all my childhood was basically playing football. We had a field right over our back wall, so I was there all the time. On the way to school, I'd get there early to play football in the yard. Lunchtime, play football in the yard. Every evening, sit in school, dream of being a footballer. Sit in school, regretting what I didn't do in the last match on the Saturday, looking forward to the next match. Totally obsessed. Um, and this is, I sound like an elf here, this is at a time when there was very little football on telly. So I'd have a video cassette recorder in the sitting room like everyone had and we would record the goals. The highlights package would be on a Saturday night and have a little video of all the goals from the first division it was called back then before the Premier League. And I had like a sad little, all I would do is rewatch that video 
lad scoring goals and memorising the com commentator saying I was just just a one trick pony football and that was it and where I loved did, it where did that come from? I've no family background in sport didn't have a, a mum or a dad that was pushing sport um, I just loved it it did, I didn't it wasn't I wasn't following anyone else's example I just you know when you do something as a kid and go I love this mm. and you just keep doing it um, and then in my teenage years I left the local team and I signed for Belvedere over in Fairview Park and I remember I wasn't like a lot of lads who are footballers have a natural mm. confidence and um, I didn't so even mm. when Belvedere, the manager came over. I was playing with Broughton Rovers, the local team, and then Leicester Celtic were only down the road. And he came over and said, will you sign for us? Gave, gave him the big sell. And I was like, that's a long way to go to be a sub. I didn't believe the praise that he was giving me. I was kind of sceptical about my chances of getting in the team. So you would have to get to, I would have to get a bus into town and then a bus from town out to Fairview. It's like, that's a lot. That's like two hours each way not to play. So I said no, because I bottled it, basically. And then three games into the season, I think we got hockeyed every game. And I was like, oh, I've made a mistake here. <laughs> I should have gone. So I rang him and thankfully he could still sign or leave. So I went. And if I hadn't have done that, everything that followed then after that, my football career wouldn't have happened. Because um, I got a trial then at Millwall. The Millwall scout was the Belvedere under 14 manager or something like that, a couple of years younger than me. So I got offered to go on trial in this <coughs> Easter of fifth year. And then they offered me a two-year deal, um, but would have meant to not do my leaving cert. And then the, my, my Belvedere manager at the time said, it was something like he said, we've sent about 52, 55 lads on contracts to England. One, maybe one and a half careers have resulted from that. So I'm not saying you're not going to make it, but the numbers are massively against you. Would you not be better off doing your leaving and then going? So I followed his advice and did that. Right. Yeah, so I stayed and did me leaving and then got a one-way flight at the age of 17 to London to play for Millwall. But it didn't hamper your chances with Millwall, though, waiting the extra year, did it? It was, it was a ballsy decision because just because they want you now, it doesn't mean they want you in a year. Yeah. You can get injured. They can sign someone in your position from anywhere else in the world that they're scouting. Or as it actually happened, the whole staffing situation changed at Millwall. So the youth development officer who offered me the deal left and he was replaced. The first team manager was Mick McCarthy. He left and took the Ireland job, so he was gone. So I went back over and trial the following summer, having to impress a whole new group of people. Um, and thankfully that went well. So I went over on a one-year deal on the massive amount of... 175 quid a week plus digs. I thought I was loaded. <laughs> like, <laughs> like 175 quid? I can do what I want for that every week. And then I spent all my money in the early days, this is before mobile phones, on the phone bill home. Every night, the, the cheap international rate would kick in at six o'clock. So my social life, my life was training every day till 12, one or two or whatever, go home, watch MTV, play snooker. And then wait till six o'clock and then ring me family mates every night. And my family, my mates be going on about going to college and going on sessions and parties and meeting girls and all this world that we weren't a part of before I went over. And I had, it's very, it, it's a brilliant, I, 
don't, this isn't a moan about the life of a footballer. It was brilliant, but it's it can be a bit repetitive, um, which I loved. But then I got to this, the the Christmas of my first year, and I came back. And at the time, the coaches I thought were giving me loads of stick. They were picking on me, like if the cones were left out after training, if the jacks weren't tidy enough. This is back when we were all doing jobs. Uh, if the first team's boots weren't clean enough, they would pick me out and go Sadler. And they would just blame me. And I think they're picking on me. So I assumed that they didn't rate me. So I thought, well, I'm making all this sacrifice. I'm missing out on all the crack that my mates are having. I'm homesick as hell. And it sounds like the coaches don't rate me. So there's no point in me staying here. I'd do all the sacrificing if I knew it would go somewhere, but it's pretty obvious I'm not going to get anywhere. So I'm going to leave. So I remember I rang home at the end of January and I was in tears. Every Most Irish footballers have this story. When they're young in the early days, they think, what am I doing here? I'm too homesick. It's not going to be worth it. And I rang and my mum answered and I just let it all out there. I said, this is miserable. The coaches are picking on me. I'm not going to make it. What am I doing? It was stupid to think I'd ever get anywhere. Um, I'll come home. <clears throat> so she listened and she was like, why, we thought you liked, why did you not say any of this before? And I was like, because... I just didn't. I didn't want to moan because I was doing the thing I wanted to do since I was six. So I thought, you can't moan. So she said, listen, go to bed, sleep on it and see how you feel in the morning. So I did that. And then on the Wednesday morning, woke up, felt a bit better. Thursday morning, went into training. And the coach said, the first team manager wants you training with them tomorrow. I think you're going to be in the squad on Saturday. So after the training on the Friday, I trained with the first team. And the manager says, uh, you've kept your nose clean. Fair play to you. I was hanging around with a couple of lads who were getting caught doing everything. And he goes, I wasn't completely innocent, but I wasn't getting caught doing anything. Yeah, so you're good at it. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and he says, you know, you're going to be in the squad tomorrow. And this is back in the day where you can only name three subs. He goes, you're going to be a sub and there's a chance you make your debut. And I was like, fucking hell, I was going to throw all this away. Three days ago, I was going to get the flight and leave. And so the following day, I played the last 25 minutes of a match at the Den in Millwall. And it was honestly the best, like indescribable experience, but best experience I've ever had at the time. Um, Who was that against? It was against Bristol City, Bristol Road, Bristol City, maybe. I was running around like a headless chicken. Like I just, I wasn't part of any pattern of play or plan. I was just run after the ball like a, fucking Labrador just chasing a ball and um, years later about three years later I was at a family do and my mum started just we were sitting there and, and she someone brought up that conversation said, do you remember that you were going to I was full of drink at the time I said like, yeah I remember I was going to leave I remember I rang you and my mum was quiet like sitting there quietly going yeah yeah and then she says do you know I I made a phone call I says, what do you mean you made a phone call? I says, yeah, after I, you put the phone down on that Tuesday night, I rang your Belvedere manager and I told him what you told me. He rang the Millwall Chief Scout and he told them what you told me. And the Chief Scout rang the first team manager. And they figured as a little pick-me-up, put him in the first team, give him his debut. And I stayed in the first team for the rest of the season. Only because I rang me ma'am, crying. That, that's how I got my break. Uh, that's how I got in the first team. Mental, that. Yeah. Like, what a story that no. is. 
that's how I get in. <laughs> but it was so mentally strange. So that like it would take like surely your your merit was obviously there. You had enough credit in the bank to justify making your first mm. name debut. But it's it's the difference between picking me or the other fella in my position who's the same age, same potential, slightly different ability. Maybe he's better at this than I am, or I'm better at this than he is. It's just a matter of opinion. It's all subjective. Yeah. Like there's no absolute right or wrong decision when it comes to picking who's the best 17 year old to put in or who's the best 18 year old. So that was the thing. <laughs> that was the thing that gave me the advantage. And I remember the first day as well on that Saturday, the team were on a run of poor results. So the manager was under pressure. And on two occasions during the 25 minutes I was on the pitch, a Millwall fan ran onto the pitch, one to confront the referee. I say confront, like to start on the referee. And another one ran from behind the goal to the dugout to attack our manager. And so there was a ring of police around the home dugout because the manager was a legitimate target of our own fans. And then so we lost the game and afterwards, we went up to the players' lounge afterwards as normal and we were told to stay there because there was a demonstration outside in the car park. A demonstration is the Millwall word for riot. Mm. So, <laughs> so there was a demonstration. So some of the cars were getting trashed out in the car park and so the players were told, don't go out. The police and the security people are going to wait in the crowd quiet down and leave and then you go out and get into your car. So I didn't have a car, so I didn't care. But I was sitting there at the age of 18 going, this is amazing. <laughs> this is the best day of my life. <laughs> but we lost. I don't think I did anything of any use on the pitch. But mm. it was, I was now a first-team footballer. It was amazing. You spoke about being homesick there. Mm. Yeah. What is... Do you think that's the biggest factor as to not why not many Irish players make it in England? Or it, what do you think is the biggest factor? It's a big factor. Now, it's different now because back then... Like I said, you had to wait till the evening and you'd have a phone call. Now you have a million ways of staying in contact with social media, FaceTime, WhatsApp, fucking Zoom. There's a million ways. Um, but at the time, it was like I was going off to this faraway <coughs> world never to come back again. It's like a one-hour flight. Mm. But at the time, no one was going to England. Like we, None of our circle were going off travelling and coming back. And then, um, But I work with a lot of lads now in my... I'm a, psychotherapist and I work mainly with teenagers and a good few of them are aspiring sports people and some of them have been to England and some of them are still there and that thing of missing family or missing friends or feeling isolated or lonely but not being able to say that you feel lonely or homesick because you're doing your dream job you're doing a job that everyone wants so you feel like you can't complain so you don't and I think that's where a lot of lads run into difficulty because the culture of professional football is, like I said a moment ago, you, there's very little, if I'm a manager, why I'm picking you instead of you. But if you're the one who keeps telling me you're homesick and lonely and, well, all of a sudden, you're ahead of the queue. So it's a survival mechanism. You don't talk about the things that actually are going on because you think it'll work against you. Mm. It's common sense, really. Yeah. It's like, why am I going to give my rival an advantage get, to get picked over me? which is fine, but if you've repeated difficulties, whether it's homesickness or some other personal thing or some mental health thing or some family thing, if you don't talk about it, it becomes a bigger thing. And like you said, yeah, I think it becomes the reason that prevents a lot of lads getting as far as they would have done. I think every player we've had on this podcast has told us that you are homesick, mm -hmm. especially Gift Forrester, actually, who got into details. Mm -hmm. like he was basically <coughs> suffering with depression over there. 
with how homesick he was and he was eating junk and he was just didn't want to be there. So I haven't heard that episode. Did his story involve asking for help, getting support, talking only to people? Not until he came home. Mm. Okay, so so he went through all of that and no one knew about it? Did anyone know? Surely he said it to somebody. I, I think he said it to his family, but when he came home, wasn't it? I think it? he came home for a funeral or something, wasn't And it? that's when he decided, yeah. like... Or along them lines yeah. in and around there. But yeah. Graham, was, Graham was similar as well. And I know other people that go over and they think, oh, look, we'll fly your girlfriend over, your girlfriend can live with you. But then she's homesick. So not only are you homesick, you have to deal with the fact that now you've put this burden on somebody else in your life yeah. that you think, well, if I wasn't here, you wouldn't be here. So you wouldn't be miserable. It's all because of me. So that's double the load then. It's a lot to ask a girl to leave all her friends and whatever her personal ambitions are, her job or her college or all, to go over to England to 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 have a life where you're not really going out that much. You're just you're, sitting around waiting. You're discouraged from doing it. Mm -hmm. And you're kind of encouraged to keep your social circle to other footballers. Because people outside football don't have the discipline required or, or they don't need to be disciplined. They can go out any night of the week. So they encourage you to stay in the world of football. So you're in this little bubble, which is fine. But if you're the partner of one of the footballers, it, there's not much crack to be had. If you're it's never going out life, yeah. and you've a way match every second week. So you're off in a hotel and she's on her own. She's 18, 19 or 20. She's going to want to be doing other things as well. So it's it's tricky. But it's difficult to talk about how tricky it is when you're in it because people turn around and go, I'd fucking give anything to be in that full of yeah. shoes. Mm. And he's talking about what, did he can't go out? Boo-hoo. Do you know what I mean? So you, yeah. you don't because you think you're not going to get met with much support or understanding. But plus, if you say within the football club that you have any difficulties, it'll cost you professionally. Yeah. I think then as well, it's such a delicate time because you're trying to establish yourself as a footballer. Yeah. So you're not quite across the line. Yeah. But over here, it's like, well, look, he's over there. He's the hush off footballer. He's living the dream. He's not quite established though. So and that's when you see it's at that vulnerable stage usually where it all breaks and all falls apart and then they come home and then it's what could have been. If you didn't come home, you could have been this. And they're like, well, I wanted to stay. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's, it's such yeah. well, Especially because they, I, I obviously as well, because you're young you come in and you think I'm missing out on these events back home and you think like I'm missing out my whole life and I'm just over here playing football and I'm stuck in a routine and I have to do this and I can imagine that that is stressful especially because when you are young when you are 17, 18, yeah. 19 you do think like oh that's like they're all at home and they get to go out together and you think I'm missing out on something and you're not you, like you're, you're a teenager yeah. Because you don't have that much perspective. Mm. You don't have that much life experience. You right? you do, if you're a footballer, you have bags of talent. But yeah. that doesn't mean the other stuff comes with it. Mm. Where you can sit there and go and see the big picture. Or sit there and go, but you know what? The, the local pub at home is always going to be there. My best mates are always going to be My family will always be there. Like if I just put the head down here for a year or two. But when you're in it, a year or two seems like a lifetime. Mm. It, like to be when you're 18 or 19, like... Now at this, I'm like I'm an elf now. A year or two is nothing. But when you're that age, you think, oh, yeah, that's my whole life. But when you're that age, you think you have all <laughs> figured out as well, though. That's the thing. Yeah. 17, 18, I had this game wrapped up. Like, you know what I mean? Plus as well, a lot of lads, and it's girls now as well. Girls can go abroad because there's professionalism kicking in, in 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 the UK. So Irish girls have that option as well. But if you're a lad going over, you, you, there's usually a status that comes with that. And, and whether in, in school or in your team, you're the fella who might become something. Um, and 
those people particularly can find it hard to open up about the things they struggle with because they're looked on by all their peers as he could be the next one. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I get that, yeah. That's tricky. So see at Millwall then, you said that you ended up staying on the fourth yeah. until the end of the season. You were signed a contract then. The club, without going into too much boring detail, the week after I made that debut, the manager was sacked. And two days later, the club was put in administration. And every player was told, you're going to be made available to leave. This is before transfer windows. So you could get a call the next day saying you're, you're leaving. Any player who was owed money by the club was told, you're not getting it because we're potentially going to go out of business. Um, the atmosphere around the place was horrible because everybody, 22 members of staff were sacked. All the coach and staff of the senior team were sacked. Um, all money, like I said, was, wasn't, wasn't going to be paid and we're all told that any moment you could be gone. So whatever ambition you had joining the club, however comfortable you felt, gone overnight. Not because of anything you did, but because of the people who ran the club ran it into the ground. But they sat me down and said, we, we want to offer you a new deal, but because the club is in administration, we're not actually allowed to offer a new deal, but we'll offer you one for the massive increase of an extra 50 quid a week. And I remember sitting there at the time going, well, this wasn't what I was promised last summer. They told me if I did well, I'd be rewarded financially. And 50 quid a week doesn't sound like a financial reward. But the flip side to that was, well, listen, we could be out of business next week. We're actually doing you a favour by offering you a one-year deal. I didn't have an agent at the time. So I wasn't able to turn to somebody who knew the crack and who was able to explain to me, they're taking the piss out of you here. Fucking run a mile from that deal. But I didn't have that. So I said, okay, I'll sign it. So I signed an extra one-year deal for an extra 50 quid a week. So, and did you not say previously you were on 175? 175. So you went to 225, yeah? Yeah, 175 plus digs. So now I was 225 plus my accommodation. And do you have any inkling on what, let's say, the best paid player at Millwall was at that time? Do you have any range? There was of a couple of Russian players, I think, on five or six grand a week or something. Five or six grand a week. This would have been 96, 97. Right. So there's players there on five, six grand, seven yeah, grand, whatever, whatever it was a week. Yeah. And you were going to be on 200 quid a week. 225, yeah. yeah. 17, 18, borderline apprentice kind of thing. Yeah, but you're, yeah, you're but all... You're a first team player. But you're also... Here's here's what they do. I remember one of the senior players, they got one of the senior players, one of the lads that was really intimidating, who kind of bossed the dressing room, sat me down and went, he was in his early 30s, and anyone who's in your early 30s is like an alpha if you're 18. Mm. Um, and he was like, you've been offered a new deal, forget money. Money shouldn't even come into it. If you're thinking of money, if money's your consideration, you've got the wrong priorities and you're the problem. So fuck money. You're at a club where young people get an opportunity to play. That should be your focus, play. That's okay. So you kind of, they, 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 they kind of circle the wagons to bully you into focusing on or, or, or diverting your attention away from the lack of money. Because they, they, they twist that as, well, if you're thinking of money, you're thinking of the wrong thing. So I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I don't want anyone to think I'm here for money because I'm not here for money, so I'll sign it. Again, if you have an agent, an agent would be able to tell the senior player, get the hell away from him. Hmm. He's, his career is none of your business. Get out of his face. Don't bully him. Don't try and lean on him. Let him make his own decisions. But I didn't have an agent. Was that a common <laughs> thing to have uh, players like that? I was looking at, what's that called? 
that new kind of series thing on Sky Sports with Gary Neville, Aim Roy, Jill Scott. The overlap. Yeah. It's the overlap, but there's a name on Stick that the one. football. Stick the football, that's the one. Ian Roy was telling a story about how he never liked going into the canteens of any football club in his career because when he was a young player, that there was one senior player who bullied him. He said his name, I can't remember mm. what his name was, but he bullied him. And any time he was at the table, he would slag him and over certain things. And he never then, for the rest of his career, liked going into any mm. canteens because of that one player. Was it a common thing to have senior players who were kind of would throw their weight around? Yes. Yeah. Massively. Even, but they didn't. Hey. Even that phrase "throw their weight around" that wouldn't have even been considered. Like there's a there's a hierarchy in a football club. The first team players are at the top, and even within the dressing room, there's a hierarchy. Then, the senior players, the more experienced players, the players who are worth a certain amount of money, or the ones who'll win you a match. The U team players are at the bottom. Plus, they're younger, like they're raw, they're naive. And and you as a youth player, you're probably cleaning the boots of one of the senior lads. Um, and they'll throw you a 50 quid Christmas bonus then for thanks for cleaning my boots all year. So it was just a done thing. Particularly at Millwall isn't, I don't think Millwall is comparable to any other club. It's just, it's its own level of bonkers. So even back then, they would be, Mad stuff would be going on and and the response always was, well, if you can't take this, you're not going to be able to take playing in the den in front of the crowd. So everything, no matter how much, we use the word bullying or intimidation or all that kind of stuff. Now, they weren't words to use back then. But this was seen as behaviour that would prepare you for the animal behaviour that would be out on a Saturday in the den in front of Millwall fans. Mm. So it's kind of this warp logic that no matter how rough it got, it was like, well, this is part of learning your trade. Because mm. if you're going to be annoyed with us slagging you in the canteen in front of 20 others, if that's intolerable to you, well, I know you're not going to be able to take it in front of thousands on Saturday who are going to be a hell of a lot worse than the 20 laughing at you in the, in the gym or in the canteen. So no matter how bad it is, the fans will always overrule the show. If you can't take this, yeah, 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 yeah. I see that, yeah. yeah. And then I got, I got, I was... Because we were in administration, the club, there was a transfer embargo, so we weren't allowed to sign anyone. And the manager that came in on a temporary basis insisted on playing long ball football, which meant you have to play a six-foot striker. I was the only six-foot striker at the club who wasn't injured, so I was playing every week. Psychologically, nowhere strong enough to deal with those conditions. Physically, I was getting battered every week by much more experienced centre-halves. We were losing most weeks. I was coming nowhere near scoring. And I very quickly became the scapegoat. Mm. and Millwall fans don't hold back at all. There's no... In a lot of clubs, you get like a honeymoon period. If you're the young kid, they get behind you and they encourage you and they're patient because they know you're young at Millwall. You have to deliver. If you don't, you're part of the problem. So I would get booed every time I'd run on the pitch a half hour before kickoff. I'd get booed every time my name was called out by the PA announcer before kickoff. If I made a mistake... I'd hear the, you, you, you kind of, sometimes you can't hear the, you can hear. Mm. And then the biggest cheer would be when I'd be taken off in the second half because I'd be knackered. I was 18 at this point. And then there was, there would, there would always be a point in the second half where the fans would repeatedly chant the word shit about me. And yet, like, I'm going, I'm looking back now, at, at, like, so I work with teenagers now. A load of them are 17 or 18. And when I sit opposite them like I'm doing with you now, I look at them and go, 
I remember what I went through when I was their age. And I was like, how the fuck did I go through that? Mm. But that's, that's the world of football. You've got to be able to deal with the conditions because the conditions aren't going to change just to tailor your personality. So you've got to fit in to the conditions. Um, and they were the conditions at the time. It was mad. You always heard about Millwall fans, yeah? Yeah. I don't know whether you have a good relationship with the club or fans now, even just after hearing what you were saying there. Obviously, now, if I was in your shoes, I'd be sitting there going, I fucking hate Millwall, you know what I mean? What is your relationship when you look at I, I, I've, you think about it? I've, my main feelings about the club is I loved the place. Because I just told you stories there of my first few months. Right. By the time I left, I was 24, got a hip injury, retired. It was the opposite. They were singing my name. We, we, I wasn't getting stick from anyone. And I felt like the club was my club. By the time I left, I think I was the longest serving player in the first team squad. So homesickness was gone. Do I belong here? was gone. Am I part of this club? That's gone. I was like, I belong here. Um. So and I, I just understood that, like, if you play well, they'll sing your name. If you play shite, they'll hammer you. Right. It's, that's, those are the terms of engagement. And you just get on with it. So you don't take it personally. I took it personally in the first few months because I didn't know any better. And after a while, I understood that they show up every week and how the team does, like, impacts their mood all week. Um, to some people in that stadium, it's the most important meaningful part of their life is their football club and if they see you on the pitch and they think you're not trying effort is the biggest thing at Millwall if they think you're not applying full effort then you're a fraud you're an imposter get off you're not one of us there's no there's no it's not a club that's any room at all for any kind of showbiz attitudes or any kind of notions if you've any signs of that that'll be kicked out of you really quickly so it's brilliant. It kind of keeps you grounded, but keeps you focused on the importance of 100% effort. If you drop below that, they're going to hammer you. So where did that then change for you? So you said you were on that run in your first few months where you were losing games and everything was going on. When do you score your first goal and when do you feel that starting to... It was kind of stop-start for a while. The, the opening game of the following season, I scored. And I think I scored three goals within the first four or five games. And then I hurt my groin and I didn't play for 11 months. 11 months? 11 months. So it was like all that momentum and that, oh Jesus, maybe I've turned the corner, gone. Just sitting in a physio room for ages. You can't make progress when you're in a physio room. You're just forgotten about. And your risk then is, oh, I've only a one year deal here. Now someone else is wearing the shirt. Are they going to do so well that I'm not going to be needed anymore. So it's not like, will I recover from the injury? When will I be back? It's like, will there be a place for me when I'm back? Have I done enough yet in my career to be given patience? You don't know. Yeah. So that was tough. And then I got back in and then stayed fit on and off, injuries here and there, and then just got physically stronger, psychologically stronger, felt as if I belonged in the place. And our team at the time, I think there was about eight lads <coughs> who came through the academy together. We were all three years apart in age. So it was a young, it, it went from being an old squad to being a young squad. And I was one of the youngsters. So I'd look around in the, in the tunnel before we go out and there'd be a load of lads in and around my age who were all really sound. We all went out together. 
we, we holidayed together. We went in the piss together. Every night and Saturday night, it was in my house. We were there every weekend. And it was a brilliant dressing room to be a part of. And then we got promoted and then we nearly got promoted again. So the whole thing changed. Like, yeah. but that's football. Yeah. You, go, you stand, like football is brilliant. But every single game, you stand in the tunnel beforehand. And you know that the range of possibilities go from, is this the game I'm going to give the performance that gets me a massive transfer? Is this the game they get an injury that I'll never recover from? And all the million things on the spectrum in between those two things. So the nerves or the excitement or the adrenaline or the fucking gratitude or all the things that you're standing there in the tunnel thinking and also the little bit of fear going, if I have a stinker today, I'm going to get dog's abuse. <laughs> um, or you don't want to be the one that lets the team down. You don't want to, oh, that's all the usual stuff. But it's an amazing, it's like an amazing experience. Like some of them, like I, I didn't, obviously the way my career finished and when it finished wasn't the way I wanted it. But the memories I have from playing like are like um, I, they're amazing. Yeah. Just the, the just that buzz of getting up every day, driving into doing something that you love. About what like what I said when I was a kid. I, I never lost that. So every day I loved playing and I got to do it as my job. So I never had to get a real job. Um so it was great. Just fucking ended. <laughs> ended short sooner than I wanted it to. So yeah, it finishes prematurely. What's that like? How's how's that nails to take? Only twenty four, like. So I was I played I made my debut for the Ireland team in February two thousand and two. They'd already qualified for the World Cup that summer. And Mick McCarthy was the manager and he had told my club manager that I was gonna be in each of the squads for the four friendlies before he picks the final squad. Um with everyone being fit, there was probably one striker spot still available. Clinton Morrison was probably going to get it. If not, I'd get it. Um, three weeks after the that match, I got injured and never played again. Um, so when I finished, I spent 18 months, I got two operations. And in September 2004, 2003, I went into the medical room because I'd been bullshitting them. They kept out, how are you feeling? And I was in bits, like real basic stuff. Playing snooker was too sore. Um, bending over, rinsing my teeth, brushing my teeth, like too, my hip was sore. I was like, I have no chance of playing football here. But I kept lying to them out of desperation because it's like, if this doesn't work, there's nothing left of me. Remember I said, I said earlier, it was a one-trick point. Football was all I had. So it's like, if this goes, I'm nothing. I'll never get a job again. I'll be miserable forever. Um, I'll just be known as the person who used to have a job and, and people will feel sorry for me or I, I don't know, I didn't know what it would be like, but I thought I can't let this happen. So I thought the best way of avoiding it happen was I would lie to the physio. How are you doing? I'm all right. Are you up to doing X, Y and Z in the gym? Yeah, I would. And I would conceal the amount of pain that I was in. And then um, towards the end of the summer, the following summer and I'd spend all summer going in doing double sessions everyone else is on holiday I was doing double sessions trying to get well and then I hurt my hip in my back garden with my mates and I realised then right I'm done and I didn't tell anyone the season was starting the following week so I bullshitted again told the physio I was grand trained with the first team in bits but concealed it 
was like, I'm going to try and get a game at the weekend. We have a game on Tuesday. Maybe I'll get a game then, but I'm done, basically. Um, so I played 20 minutes on the Saturday, I think, against Crew. Tuesday night, I played 20 minutes against Stoke. And then the following week, retired. So I, the process of retiring wasn't like someone coming in saying, that's it, you're done, leave. It was me walking into the medical office going, can I have a chat? And I said, do you remember all the surgeon's deadlines? Like, I've missed them all. Do you remember the thing he said a year and a half ago that in a half a year I'll be as good as I'll ever be? Well, I was in bits then. And here's what it's actually like being me every day. I, I've no chance of getting through training. I've no chance of doing whatever. And they were brilliant. They were like, if you want to go again, we're like, we'll back you. I had about a year and a half left on my contract. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm just wasting everyone's time. And I'm mentally demented. All, when you're a footballer and you're not playing football, the first question every single person will ask is, when are you back? Or if you're injured, what everyone will ask is, how was your injury? So every single person I met for a year and a half, I was just bullshitting them, right? And so I went in and then, and then finished. And I left honestly thinking, I didn't really know what to think. But I was like, my life is over. Like, I had no perspective at the time at all that there was a world outside football. I had no idea at all that there would be a place for me in that world, whatever that world looked like. Um, so I just went in the piss all the time. Because my head was a horrible place to be. And I was still spoofing. Like I, I went on Eamon Dunphy's chat show. He had a chat show at the time. And I kind of gave a bit of a polished act of, you know, I'm grateful for the career, but I've got, you know, I'm looking forward to what I'm going to do next. And Sky Sports News came to the back garden and did an interview with me. And I, I said a few things that I thought someone in my position should say that might sound impressive. Um, but the truth was like I was in turmoil. Um, within, a few, within about three weeks, I remember being in a party and there was cocaine everywhere. And I was like, and it wasn't the first party I was at where there was cocaine everywhere, but it was for the first time I was going, no one can randomly drug test me anymore. This is the first time in my adult life now I have choice. I was like, fuck it, give me that. So I tore into that then for a while. Um, and, that, and that was it for a good while, to be honest. Bullshitting to everyone that I was adjusting to the world, grateful for the memories, ready to embrace the new opportunities. But in reality, my head was just like a jungle. <laughs> it's a mess. Do you regret not going again with the medical team? I often wonder that because just to give me a massive boot in the hole, the team that season got to the FA Cup final against Man United. Millwall don't get the cup finals. Mm. Dennis was the captain of that yeah. team. So I was like, fuck it. If I'd gone again... Would my few weeks of being back in the first team overlapped the semi-final in Old Trafford against Sunderland or the final in Cardiff against Man U? And I tormented myself with that for years. And then I got to, like, I'm sitting there now going, I did the best I could, made the decisions I thought were the right ones, and I dealt with it as well as I could. Um, but at the time, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't nice being me at all. It was hell. Because mm. I was full of I was full of fear. It was the biggest thing. It was like, what do I do now? 
Like, Jan, I had no answer to that. Now, what the fuck would I do now? And even if I do get a job, I started working as, an, as an, a consultant for a football agency, which meant developing relationships with young players, which meant talking to football footballers about their football world, which was like just teasing myself. It was like hanging around with your ex that has just dumped you, seeing her every day going, this is the thing I want, but I can't have. So like, this isn't for me. So I left that. Got a job at Millwall Academy, working with teenagers and scout, overseeing the scouting system and stuff. Same again. I was like, I'm tormenting myself here. And I started to work as a pundit with Satanta Sports. Same thing again. I'm showing up looking at matches and all I'm thinking of is full of self-pity. Why can't I be out there? But then I was thinking, well, all I know is football. The only jobs I'm going to get are football related. So if the place I'm least comfortable with is being around football, then there's nowhere else. There's no other place for me. Um, so I came back to Dublin then, thinking that everything would be great if I just moved. <laughs> uh, did it geographical. Mm. Um, it's where, you know, you, your head is wrecked and you just think, oh, my address is the problem. My environment is the issue. If I just moved somewhere else, my head would be different. Um, and my head was the very same when I came back. And it was really messy years then in Dublin for, for a long, long time. And then at the age of 31, I took a notion to go back studying um, and I studied psychotherapy because I'd been to psychotherapy briefly and got a lot out of it. And I was like, I, d I don't know what I'm good at. I don't know what I'm interested in. I'm starting from scratch. I was 31 starting from scratch. And I thought I'm too old to start a new thing, all this stuff. And then so I went to college and started to learn about psychotherapy and a big part of the training is you have to learn about yourself. Mm. It's not about learning fancy phrases that you tell to your clients. You have to kind of, you have to work through your own shit first before you can be in a chair sitting opposite someone to help them work through theirs. And I realised I have a world of shit here that I've been avoiding. Big one was drinking drugs. So within a year of that, I was in my first AA meeting. Um, and just like a repeat of all the feelings I had when I left football going, my life is over. What's going to be like life going to be like now without football? Exact same thing. The age of 32 going, my life is really over now. What is my life going to be like without drink? My best mates were my mates since I'm 14, 12, 13. Do I have to leave them now? Do I have, do I have to get new mates? I was single at the time and I was baffled as to how you would ever have sex. How would you ever start a relationship? How would you go on a date sober? Would anyone in the world want to date someone who's sober? So I thought, right, I'm going to be celibate and single forever with no mates. Never go to gigs, never go to matches, never go on holidays. Become a monk. <laughs> All that. I was fucking... Say, loads of the same feelings actually since playing, finishing playing football full of self-pity. Mm. Anger. That, why is it fucking me? Why can't I be him across the road? Why me again? Um, and then that kind of quickly changed. I started to hang around with people who were in recovery and they weren't telling me what to do. They weren't promising me anything. But by example, they were showing me what life can look like in recovery. Um, and I liked that. They were going on dates. They were getting jobs, losing jobs getting married, going to funerals, going to gigs, 
not drinking and they were enjoying it. And if you'd have sat down and told me that those things were possible, I wouldn't have believed you. But I was now hanging around with people who were demonstrating that it's possible. So it's like, okay, grand. There's a little bit of hope here. Maybe I'm wrong to think my life is over. My life's probably still shite. But it might be some crack here. And then that kind of went through my 30s and the longer I was sober, the more comfortable I was. I started to talk a bit more openly to people around me that I was in recovery. The shame of being in recovery went. The embarrassment of going to meetings was gone. Um, feeling like a complete spare tire at any social event, that went. Um, and I started to go on holidays, go to gigs and go to a lecture picnic and go to Croke Park for the big games and be at Irish matches and be a pundit and then go out with the lads to the pub afterwards and be all right. Mm. I was going, I never thought I'd be able to do this. Um, and then life just became, no, it was a new normal. It was very different to what I used to know. Um, but that's my life now. Mm. The, I think the thought of being sober is so alien to people and the fear around it as well. Like I do get messages to people of people saying like, I want to be sober. Have you got any advice? Mm. What do I do? And I don't know. I don't know what to tell them. Like, because I'm no professional. I'm not an expert in it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't drink, but I don't know what I'm doing that you can do and you'll be I able know. to do this. But it is, it's just this big burden that's following people and they're like, I don't want to be doing this anymore. Yeah. I want to be sober, but I know I can't with this thing following me. And my only advice to people is that you need to be in social environments and sober to realise what it is actually like and that it is possible now I get it is daunting because yeah. people are anxious and alcohol gives people that bit of confidence to talk or express themselves they dance or whatever but you need to maybe even if it is only for an hour or two like show up to somebody's 21st and leave early but that's still a fourth mm. step but what advice would you give to somebody in that situation then? I I'm really reluctant to give anyone advice because everyone's situation is way more complicated than a fancy phrase from me. Do you know what I mean? That's exactly how I feel about yeah. it. Because I can't say this will work. Yeah, because it's all like, I, I'm often asked that in groups. If someone's going through A, what advice would you give? And I go, will it be a bit arrogant of me to think Mm. that you've told me all the details that I need to know in order for me to help this person in the 20 seconds you've spoken about that person, right? There's loads that is going on that you haven't told me or maybe you don't know, but me just saying something flippant is usually not helpful. Um, I think a lot of people that have contacted me and they've asked me, what should they do? I'll say, I've no idea what you should do because I don't know you. I don't know what you've tried. I don't know what would work. I don't know your personality. So I'm not going to assume you're the same as me or your issues are the same as mine. But here's what I did to address the issues I have. Now, if any of this sounds familiar or sounds helpful or sounds appealing or you want to know more, I'll tell you as much as you want. But I can't tell you what you should do. I'll just tell you what I did. And I'll tell you all the things I did that I wish I didn't do. <laughs> and I'll tell you all the things I tried that didn't work. And I'll tell you the things I tried that worked and the things I continue to do that work. And if you you can take on board the bits you like, you can ignore the bits you don't like, you can blank me forever or you can ring me again and we'll have another chat. 
but I just share my experience of what was like for me. Um, rather than kind of tell someone, here's the three things you need yeah, to do. Yeah, there's a magic you, formula. What you said earlier is perfect because you'll never either as well. Like I get messages all the time about being in recovery and people wanting to get sober and I will never sit there and explain to them what they should do because you... Like you, you don't said, know them. You don't know anything about them. And plus, I I believe you will only get sober when you know what's right to get sober. Like like you said, you can't just sit here and give someone a fancy phrase or, mm. oh, look, it's great, you get to wake up, you don't have a hangover, you have more money in your pocket. None of that works if you want it. Because they all know that. They know this is... Yeah, yeah exactly. Like you're saying, they, they know that. Like yeah. they, they know all the benefits of it. Like... There's no come downs anymore. There's all this. They know that. But it's how to get to the point where you don't want to drink mm. and use. What I can't tell you that, and neither can Calvin, neither can you. No one can tell you that. Mm. And even if somebody does tell you that, it's still in you to make that decision yeah. because at the end of the day, it is an addiction. Like, although, like, it's a lifestyle change, yes, but there is an addiction there. And it's not easy to just go, oh, the addiction's yeah. gone. Now I live a better more happy life that's you need to do real fucking work like so there's no point in anybody of course it's good to give advice you can give someone advice and you can even remind them of the pros of yeah. getting sober but sitting there and trying to preach or trying to preach to them i mean or and like that i i personally don't believe it works because i've had many people over the years trying yeah. to tell me get sober you know this this what's like so bad and when people used to tell me that, I nearly used to resent it. Yeah. Mm. I nearly used to go, oh, right, yeah, you preach all you want. And, yeah. and you was, like... It that's just a, that's a big reason why I don't, because I think you can very quickly come across as someone who is all of a sudden sounding like they've all the answers. Yeah. And I'm not. And a bit pretentious. A bit, of, oh, look at your man. He was on the yeah. fucking arse a few years ago. Now, because he hasn't drank, yeah. he thinks he can tell me how yeah. to live my life. That's exactly him. it, yeah. I saw him when he was baba, and yeah. now he's telling me. Mm. So... I, I, I think a pain is a big motivator. If you've hurt yourself, if you've experienced so much repetitive pain and you've woken up numerous times with your head and your hands going, how the fuck is this my life? If you, if you, if you go low enough or you hurt enough, that often is the thing. And, and you're not going to experience that by me telling you something. You'll only experience that from you doing whatever it is you do to cause yourself pain where you go, enough's enough. Mm. I've reached my point. Like like a, you know, like a car that's on the road, it just runs out of petrol. You, you've, you just can't continue. There's nothing left in the tank. You have to stop. That was what it was like for me. I didn't stop because I got a fancy phrase from anyone or because someone sent me the three bullet points on what to do. I stopped because I had nothing left to give. Yeah. I've rammed myself into the ground and I was like, right, my way doesn't work. I have to do something different. And the doing something different was actually acknowledge I need help and to reach out and get the help. And that's so, exactly. so you drop the notion that I have the answers. But mm. that's exactly it though. Because like, I feel like it's the exact same in my situation. You just feel like you're at the lowest point. You can't fall any further on the yeah. floor and you're on the floor. Yeah. How the fuck do I grow up now? There's a benefit to that. You, mm. Like, no one wants to be in that situation. Yeah. But when you're there, uh, I know loads of people in recovery who are in recovery because they were there. They hit that point. Because usually when you're just 
if you're drinking or you're drug taking, it's a bit of an issue, but no big deal. I, I, like, that's not a huge incentive to change. But if it's becoming the thing that's destructive in all your relationships, you're losing jobs, you're costing your accommodation, your access to your children, your marriage is gone. You go, okay, I can't, I can't really avoid looking at this anymore. I'm in my room on my own and all there is is drinking drugs. Everyone has left. Then you're kind of going, right, maybe it's me. Mm. <laughs> maybe there's something here I should look at. Mm. Yeah. That's the stuff that really motivates people to change. Yeah. But unfortunately, some people have to fall that far to realise. Another phrase, rock bottom. That's mm. used for a good reason. Yeah. We also said earlier, you wouldn't have believed somebody if they told you. No. <laughs> that there was a life being sober. No. But then people are demonstrating yeah. to you. Yeah. So it's good to also try and find people. doesn't mean leave your friends and you don't talk to them again, but try and surround yourself in different circles. And... And let them demonstrate yeah. that you can. And that's, again, like I said, I don't want, I'll never sit here and preach and say, you should be sober on this podcast, right? But what I'd like to think me and Calvin do well is show people that we can come on a podcast and talk to people and have a life outside the podcast and neither of us drink or use drugs. Yeah. And try and show them that, like, doesn't mean we're happy all the time because we're fucking not. Mm. We're fucking human at the end of the day. You go through shit and you struggle mentally, of course. You're going to have dips and waves that'll come into your life and, these things will happen. But you don't need to use drinking drugs even when you're at a low point. Yeah. And I think that's the message. I think as well, after me saying that, what the common theme there is that I can't tell you how to do it, but I can show that it is possible. Like, as you said, like you go to these events, like we go to them events as mm -hmm. well. And we are living our life and we're doing it sober. So there is a possibility. I just haven't got the magic formula, X, Y, Z, bang, and you can do it. Mm -hmm. I think if that did exist we'd all be sober. You'd switch on and off like that. Because if overcoming your addiction issues or substance abuse or problem drinking or problem drug use, whatever you want to if it was as simple as a speech, a cleverly worded speech from someone who you care about, like addiction would be gone overnight. Yeah. It wouldn't be, in, it wouldn't be a societal issue. It wouldn't be something that's ruining so many people's lives. Everyone would know the wording of the speech or they'd know the phrases to use and that to answer the question you asked a while ago, what should you say? But that's not how it works, unfortunately. It's way more complex than that. Like rational thinking doesn't come into it. You've been in a company of people who are problem drinkers or problem drug users and you would think looking at them, how does she not know this is her main problem? How does he think it's going to be different this time? Because the last hundred times he drank, it was the same outcome. What does he think is going to change this time? Like, so all that rational, logical thinking, the person who's in active addiction, that thinking is just beyond them. And it's infuriating and it's really worrying and it's really hard when you're a loved one of that person because you can't reach them. All the, the emotional outpourings of, please, look, do it for the kids, do it for me, do it for your mum, you see what you're doing to your dad. You've lost a job, you know, come on, we, we, we lose the house. You'd think a rational mind would respond to those pleas with, yeah, love, you're right. Sorry, I'll, I'll stop. But that's not how addiction works. It's, and it's, it's heartbreaking. And it's, it's a cunt when you're that person as well. You live with so much regret. Because mm. I live with a lot of regret and shame from doing that to my loved ones, like my close family members. Mm. Like my ma would be crying to me 
you need to stop. You're going to be found dead. You're going to be locked up, coming in with cuts and bruises on your face, black eyes and cuts in your hands and from fighting or ending up in a holding cell overnight or whatever. And they really, your loved ones really think you're going to be found dead one of the nights mm. or you're going to end up doing something stupid and ending up locked up. And yet you don't give a bollocks. You just go using again the second you can. I remember my last Christmas day, my last Christmas drinking. I didn't know at the time it would be my last Christmas drinking. I went to the local five or six o'clock. Everyone who goes to the local on Christmas Eve, you, you know the drill. You don't go out late. You get home, big day tomorrow, a few pints at your mates, you're home by 11 or 12. I ended up at some party house doing pills. I remember eight or nine a.m., walking the streets and it's freezing <laughs> like trying to get a cab and I was like why is fucking no taxis it's Christmas it's day morning, right yeah. and then ended up going home for some reason I had a bottle of wine I had a mate with me and I was drinking there on my own and blacked out in the in the sitting room and I was meant to be at my family Christmas dinner that day at one o'clock two o'clock and I don't know how many missed calls I had when I woke up but I'd shit loads of them and I for wonder what must it have been like being my family going no sign of Richie. On Christmas Day, he's not here. Fucking hell, things must have got really bad. And I ended up waking up around six or seven o'clock, looked at my phone, oh, oh, oh no. Same usual, familiar thing, head in your hands going, oh no, how's this happened again? And crawled around to my, my parents' house and no appetite because of the drugs that were in my system. And it's gone, oh, this, this is it. This is my life. And then you go home, you sleep, wake up in the morning, you don't feel as bad, but you think, do you know what will make this better? A few pints. Yeah. Cure. The races are on. Yeah. And the football. Yeah. Steve's day, <laughs> Steve Steve. day is a big day. Let's go. And that's, but, but like I saying now, because me and my brothers were only laughing about it the other day, but like, well, thank fuck you can't ruin Christmas this year because you're not fucking drinking <laughs> because we've ruined every fucking Christmas. Yeah. But the last fucking... Obviously, since yeah. since I got sober, I haven't been. But the, the last three or four Christmases previous to that, we fucking ruined Christmas. I start fights at the family. Since I got sober, you start ruining Christmas down to me mask. <laughs> Showing up on me mask, and I'm not even there. Do you would be ringing me? You look pretty only in me mask kitchen. They're all there, head wrecked. Last <laughs> Christmas down this got boiled the kettle there, Vanessa. Yeah, drag me brothers up out of bed nine o'clock in the morning. So Stephen's the day that was. He's there, fresh new tracksuit on, showered new and track all. Me two brothers sitting there bleeding bollocks. To He's like, where are you? I was like, I'm at home, where you should be. Where are you with me mask? <laughs> but it, like, it's, I would never have cared about this when I was drinking or wouldn't have appreciated it. But since I got sober, like, I don't, I don't miss any days. Do you know when you're drinking, loads part of the day will be gone from your memory the next day or the next day will be spent recovering or sleeping off the previous day. And the day after that, you're still licking your wounds a little bit and you're, you're kind of on the mend from the session, but you're preparing for the next one and you're distracted, you're, you're, you're regretting what you did and you're kind of bracing yourself for what you're about to do. And you're kind of all the time, I was an RTE at the time. I remember going, fucking hell, is the next session going to be the one where something happens, which I lose it all. But I know I don't have the power to prevent myself going in the next session. It's happening. Mm -hmm. so just strap yourself in and hope that you, you get away with it or that nothing happens um, and now none of those things are in my head I don't spend any energy anymore 
And it's only when I stopped drinking that I realized how much of my thinking time was around drink. So I don't spend any of my day today going, when should I start drinking? I wish I didn't drink. Who should I go drinking with? What will I miss because of my drinking? Um, who'll be pissed off because of my Blah, blah, blah. It's just gone. Mm. So you text me the other day, said, come here for five o'clock. I knew I'd be here for five o'clock. I have a baby who's teething and he'll be awake all night and I'll be there to try and get him back to sleep. It won't work. I can't get him back to sleep. <laughs> His mouth is on fire. Mm. Um, and I haven't come up with a way yet of trying to get him back to sleep, but I'll be there to try. Yeah. I'll be there on Christmas Day. No one is spending any time at all wondering whether I'll show up anymore or wondering, will I be okay? I'm grand. <laughs> there's no, there's no lows anymore. There's no head in your hands going, is this what my life is like? Is this me? It's just not anymore. It's but gone. This, this is what's on the other side. Yeah. And that is priceless because you can't get that. You can't put a price on that. Like, no. That out there, that's just unachievable. Like that, you can spend three days hungover. That's three days of your life gone. gone. And what happened in them three days? You missed your son's football match. You couldn't bring him to school on Monday because you were still bleeding. Your head was, or your tail was still between your legs. So yeah. your missus had to do it. Now you're in the doghouse with her because of that. Is it worth it? You can't get that back. But everything, the impact it has in relationships on your career or your job or your chances of getting a job or whatever sporting ambition you have or gym routine you have or anything. You, you can't expect those things to go well if you're a problem drinker or problem drug user. Just there's too much of an overlap. It's, mm. Something's going to give. And it usually impacts other people. It's mm. one thing Amy always says to me. She says, no matter what happened in this relationship, I'm so grateful that you don't drink. Because she knows how bad it'd be. Yeah. Like, I'd go out, Richie, I'd go out on Saturday night. Saturday night is the 23rd. I'd probably come home then Sunday morning at some stage. So if I drank, I wouldn't come home Sunday morning. Yeah. I'd still be out Sunday. Like, like, but a, a lot of people, and I'm always conscious of this, like, drink is a healthy part of loads of people's lives. That's what I always say. Loads of people. If you can. They cannot relate to what we're talking about. Mm. Because when they go out, they have an off switch. After X amount of pints or X amount of whatever it is they're taking, if they have a decided time in their head when they're going to finish or go home, they can go home. And they have, they can still maintain control even when they start drinking or drug using. I, I'm just not one of those people. So while I'm talking like this about the joys of sobriety or the problem of drinking, that's just my experience. Mm. There's a load of people listening to this can dip in and out of the world of drinking and it doesn't cause any difficulty to their relationships. They've never lost a job because of it. They're not no financial difficulties because of it. They've never lost their accommodation because of it. Never caused them a moment's bother. So I don't think we should come across like we're demonizing alcohol. But if you're an alcoholic, it only goes one way. You'll never come out on top in the long run. It's just a question of how do you limit the damage or manage the damage or ignore the damage or deny or delude yourself that you're causing damage. Um, but just from my own experience, the before and after is... It's like, night and day. There's no comparison. There's mm. no comparison. You, you do talks, do you, in skills? Yeah. Around that? I have a kind of a mad life at the moment now because... Years ago, people, when they used to stop me or ask me to do talks, it would be about football. 
And then it became about football and maybe working on telly. And then when I started working as a psychotherapist, mental health was also a topic. And then when I wrote my book a few years ago and I spoke about my addiction and my traumas, those were the topics. Um, and I've done a load of work recently around teenagers and sexual health and all that stuff. So sex is a big thing. So I get asked now to do talks and it could range from mental health to football to sex to drinking to drugs. Um, it's not a bad wheelhouse now, in fairness. But it's... it's <laughs> Booked up for the year? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. The, the, probably the... One, one of the areas I'm most comfortable in or I most enjoy is if you're in a room full of secondary school students, transition year, fifth year, sixth year, it's a senior cycle, and you just create an environment where discussing drink or drugs or sex or porn or all the stuff that is in their lives but is tricky to talk about. Very few adults are comfortable to bring these things up. Very few teenagers are keen to speak to the adults in their lives about these things. So it's a topic that's all their lives, but not really addressed. I love getting into a room and just overcoming all those obstacles and trying to get everyone feeling comfortable. Sometimes that means you get the staff out of the room, you get the teachers out of the room and it's just you. Um, and you just facilitate a chat with a load of young people about all this really exciting stuff that they all want to learn about, but they're afraid to ask or a lot of adults in their lives are reluctant to put themselves forward to answer. It's great crack. And it's not hard. Like, it's not hard to get a group of teenage lads interested in sex. How would you even get into that, though, Richie? I, I, so I started working as a psychotherapist in when I was about... I'm little, about 10 years doing it now. And I, I realised that in my training, they spent a good bit of time talking about childhood development and loads on adult world but very little on the teenage life. And then when I started to work as a therapist, loads of my colleagues, as I did, worked with adults. Small few worked with children, but I didn't know many who worked with teenagers. Um, and a lot of my adult clients would be there to talk about things that happened in their teenage life. And a recurring team would come up, they'd no one to talk about, they didn't get support, they didn't know who to talk to, and they were just left to work out in their own little teenage head unsupervised or unsupported what the fuck is going on and it kind of created long-term difficulty for them um, and I just thought wouldn't it be wouldn't it be good to work with that age group because there wasn't many people I knew working with that age group so I went back to my old secondary school and said any interest in me doing any mental health related stuff in the classroom that was it I just showed up at the door I didn't really have an idea he, Principal said yes, so okay. I cobbled together a six-week thing about mental health, did it with the transition year lads. And when you get a room of teenagers talking openly about their life, sex and porn and sexting and masturbation, all that would get mentioned loads. So it's like, right, need to do something in this area. So myself and a, a colleague of mine, we put together a six-week sexual health course. Same school, transition year lads. And the more we were in there, the more the lads appreciated us being there because no one was having these chats with them anywhere else. So we're doing condom demonstrations. So rather than like back in our day where you'd get a finger wagging, don't get anyone pregnant. That was it. Mm. That was it. That was it. Here's the thing we don't want you to do. Don't do it. But no information about how you would avoid it. But we're like, let's go, let's push ourselves a bit. And show them how you use a condom. And we, we would talk for hours about porn and, 
what's a healthy relationship? What's a healthy sexual encounter compared to one that's not? And if you're 14 or 15 or 16 and you're watching porn, how the fuck do you know what's a realistic depiction of sex or what's the bonkers version just because the director of the porn industry wants to present a certain scene? Like, how do you know? So we would have all these conversations and the lads loved it. And so I started writing in the media about some of the work I was doing. I ended up writing a book about it last year for 15 year old lads. Uh, kind of wrote the kind of book that I thought would be useful to me when I was 15. So all the stuff about consent and porn and relationships and sexuality and condoms and STIs and just normalised it all. Just kind of the approach is just validate every young person's interest in this area because you're meant to be interested. That's what's meant to happen. In your early teens, you're meant to be curious and excited by nudity and scenes of a sexual nature. That's a sign of healthy development. But often in this country, we shame people mm. of that age if they're interested in sex. If you're a girl and you're interested in sex, you're a slag. If you're a boy and you're interested in sex, you're only after one thing, you're a little perv. If you're gay, you're a fucking problem as well. This was the old attitudes all the time. And it's still the attitude in lots of households. So I thought, push back against all of that and just normalise and validate their curiosity and their concern and help them actually answer some of the questions they're grappling with. And some of the questions aren't answerable. Like, how do you define a healthy relationship? There's, there's loads of different ways. Because what's healthy to you is different from what's healthy to you. Mm. But it, it, I think it's better to have the conversations. Mm, definitely, yeah. Because you normalise them talking about stuff that our generation never got to speak about. Yeah. And it's, so it's mad. Like, I'm sitting, do you remember 20 minutes ago I said I was just interested in football and that's it. Mm. <laughs> now I'm in this really weird world where there's a load of different things that I'm really interested in yeah. and loads of random jobs I do that I love doing you're not just normalising talking about sex though you're normalising having difficult conversations yeah. and that will stand to you not just as a 15 year old going through puberty mm. but like as an adult when you have to have a difficult conversation about anything in life do you know what I mean How, like some people shun away from that and they have problems or whatever and they yeah. bury it Whereas now you're like, look, I have this problem. Here it is. And then you walk on it then, you know what I mean? Plus a lot of youngsters are going through difficulties, not because of their own shortcomings or failings, mm. because of the behaviour of the adults in their life. Do you know what I mean? They just are. And they're acting out in school or they're acting out in sports fields, they're acting out in neighbourhoods or their fucking shops on a Friday night or whatever. And it's just their way of dealing with a really difficult set of circumstances that are not of their creating. So... We we could do loads more than we're currently doing to help young people of that age group. They should, ideally, there'd be way more people working with teenagers than there currently are. There'd be way more funding going into the youth mental health systems than there currently are. Like, it's shite. It's, it's unbelievably poor. But hopefully it's improving. How much of a negative impact is porn having on teenagers nowadays? Obviously... Years ago wouldn't have been accessible yeah. or as accessible. So when I when I, I don't know what it was like when you were a teenager, you were in, in the world where online so my world when I was say fifteen, there was no internet in my house. Did the internet even exist? No one <laughs> did ninety four? When when did the internet start? Something like that, yeah. Okay, so it wasn't in my household. Yeah. So if you wanted to watch porn as a teenager when I was a teenager, you had to get a magazine. Or you'd get a video. Now, what were they called back then? Was it Yogan and Blue Movies or something, wasn't it? 
The blue moon. Yeah, the, the, the old the elf is still called the blue moon. <laughs> you watching them blue moon? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you'd get it. You'd, you'd, and I don't know where you'd get it, but the, there'd be videos knocking around somewhere in the neighbourhood, and you, you'd have to get it. But the only way you could watch it is put it in the main video recorder, which was in everyone's sitting room. This is back. Houses had one telly back then, so it wasn't like a load of options of which room. So you had to work very hard to get porn, and it was limited availability and limited accessibility. Now, we give kids phones from the age of 10. So you, you're, you're giving kids access to the porn industry at a time when they're starting to become interested in sex. So it's difficult to answer the question you're asked there in a way that'll apply to everyone. But there's loads of young people I speak to and I work with that have run into real difficulty because, not because they're bad people, not because they're bad girls or bad lads, it's just that they're reenacting the behaviour of the porn actors that they've been learning about sex from since they were about 11 or 12. And in the world where there's no other conversations about sex happening at home, because they're all awkward, or in school, because there's a conservative principle or there's no curriculum or whatever, they just think, oh, this is, this is, this is what you do. You, you choke your partner. You, you, you spit in your partner. You, you, if you're a lad, you talk to a woman like they're an absolute piece of shit and she's going to love it. So young girls are looking at this and going, that's my role. If I'm, if I'm a girl and I want to have sex with a lad, I know how I should behave because umpteen women and umpteen scenes I'm seeing in, in, in porn behave a certain way. Um, and it's damaging a lot of young people. And a lo load of people as well are, are so... Cons I don't know what to consume porn or whatever so often that they're not having real life experiences at all. Mm. Loads of people in their early 20s have come and seen me and their real life experiences are so limited. Their sex drive isn't the issue. It's just that they've, their, their, their sex life is almost solely virtual. And when it gets to real life encounters, they have issues then with, with, with getting an erection or maintaining an erection or being aroused because this one person with a real life body is very different than what they were led to believe a sex scene is because for the last umpteen years, there's numerous people walking in and out of the room getting involved and it's it's amazing. So it's causing a lot of problems. And then does that bring an issue then with consent? In terms of like your sex life, you'd imagine in a normal relationship or life scene, you'd sit down yeah. with your partner. If you're seeing them or if you're in a relationship and you sit down and you say, look, I like this and I don't like this, you like that. Well, those are tricky. Those are tricky. Even if you park porn for a moment, like consent has become a topic that load of people are aware of in the last few years. And when I start to talk about consent in a classroom, usually it'll start with courtroom language. Mm. What's the legal definition and what's the conviction rates and how can you prove it? And who's, and then, so you, Eventually you get from, okay, let's get from the language of the courtroom to the kind of things you'd say in the bedroom. Mm. So how do you get to a scenario when you and your partner are on the same page as one another and you're okay and comfy with what's happening? That's kind of it. So you kind of remove all the discussions about law and definitions and the contentious stuff and he's right and she's right and all this. Um, and that's tricky because in a country where we don't give each other permission or encouragement to talk openly about sex, we're expecting all these young people or adults to be able to comfortably talk to their partner about sex. Well, you know, 
what would you like to do tonight? How did you feel last night went? What bits did you enjoy? It's you'll ever believe me. It's, it's, am, it's amazing. It's a point where you know exactly what you love yeah. and exactly what you aren't really into. And how to keep doing it. Exactly. And, and it'll... See like, how common sense this is. See, see how common sense this is. Mm. Where two people would sit together and go, you reflect on what you just did together. Which bits worked? Which bits didn't? What would you like to do the next day? Let's do it. Mm. And you actively communicate with each other through the whole thing about how it's going. Yeah. It's communication. But it's tricky to get that message across to young people or to adults who've no experience of talking about sex. But I think... At all. So you were talking about sex in detail there. What did you like? What just, the, just the conversation around consent as well, though, like because you don't want to be that person. You're in a taxi. You're on the way home from a nightclub. We're going home to have sex. Exactly. That's okay, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No one wants to be that awkward about it. Like, are we going home to have sex? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, that is consent on my behalf. Let's go. So, so there's there's got to be a bit like a, a conversation. Yeah, it's got to be. The chat has to be reflective of real life as well. Yeah. Like, to use that scenario, it's, it's not practical to tell a group of young people, you know, before you invite someone back to your house, I think you should tell them that, you know, in the car, I'm going to maybe rub my hand down your leg and then I'm maybe going to kiss you and then I'm going to do this. And then when I get home, I'm planning to do this and then that and then that and then that. How do you feel about that? Like, that's not realistic. Mm. You, there's a bit of kind of spontaneity and there's a bit of fun and there's excitement and there's the not knowing what's going to happen. Like that's part of the whole thing as well. But you're trying to get across the idea that at all times, check in with your partner about how they are. Mm. And, and ideally you're with a partner who's going to check in and care about where you are. That's the kind of message you try and keep repeating again and again and again, which is tricky in a world where you could be full of drink and full of drugs or you've just met the person or you're shy, you've never had a discussion about sex, you don't even know what words to use. So by having these conversations repeatedly with young people again and again and again, you normalise the conversation for them and you support them to have the conversations with others. Mm. Because if you don't communicate with one another, it's really difficult to know whether the person you're with is consenting to what you're doing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I think that's even on the build-up. But I even think during sex then... Mm not assuming because you've watched so much porn that women just like to be choked. I know. Or women just like this. I know. That's why consent even there has to come into play. Like, yeah. That you don't just go and do that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Even if it's Jordan's sex, if she has a conversation and she wants you to do that and I should do it, okay, do it. But not just to well, assume. Well, you have to be comfortable as well. Mm. Yeah, well, of course, I mean, but, but what, what I'm saying is like, if that comes up in conversation Jordan's sex, he says, do it, you say, no, okay, just keep doing what mm. you're doing or whatever. But I mean, not just to reenact what you've seen online in this fucking I was field. talking to a couple of friends of mine recently, they're women and they're dating and, and they're like, how are you getting on? It's grand, but... You can tell pretty soon which lads are watching too much porn. <laughs> By their behaviour, they mm. can tell, oh, okay, this is familiar. Mm. I know where they're getting these ideas from. Yeah. Richie, a little boardy told me that this is your first Christmas as a father. Yes. How's that feel? So we would have had, Myself and my wife were due. We were told in the summer of 2018 that we couldn't have kids naturally. Mm. And lots of people listening to this will know what that feels like. You're kind of going, oh shit, this is not, this is not what we wanted to hear. 
So we were told, right, if you want to be parents, which we really did, they said, you're going to have to go into the world of IVF and your fertility treatment, which we knew nothing about. So we spent four years doing IVF and every round failed. And after each failed round, we're like, do we need to give up? Do we need to keep going? Because it's like, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. Y y you go into it going, this is the process which is going to result in our baby. And you get excited. And we're real positive thinkers. We Every round we went into, we're like, this is going to be the one that works. And we'd have the baby's name picked out. And then you get to a point and you realize it doesn't work. So it's like, it's like you're, you've lost your baby. So you go to this grieving process of losing your baby. And it's horrible. And it's weird because the baby never existed, but in your head it did. And then you think, right, you've maybe not just lost your baby, but maybe you're a step closer to accepting that you'll never have a baby. And then you dust yourself off, you go again. So we, we got to a point then where they said, IVF is not going to work for you. So you're going to have to go to, if you want a baby, remember, you can't have it naturally. IVF isn't working. You have to go into the world of egg donor treatment. Do you know anything about that? I don't really even know much about IVF other than they take your sperm, they take a whole yeah. egg, they impregnate the egg and then put it back inside. Yeah. Is that how that yeah. works? Yeah, so so a, a natural conception is like a, two people have sex and the sperm and the eggs meet. Yeah. Uh, an embryo is created and that goes full term and a baby is yeah. born. But in IVF, they have to kind of, lots more people are involved in the process. Yeah. Someone has to take the sperm from you, the eggs from her, in a lab, the two meet, an embryo is created. And then put back in. And you have to wait for the embryo to survive for five days. And not all embryos survive for five days. If they survive to day five, it's transferred back into the woman. And then 10 to 12 days later, you do a pregnancy test. But at any point along that process, you can get a call saying, no, game's over. Mm. So it's all consuming, particularly because it's the thing you want more than anything. And then and it costs um, a lot as well, doesn't it? There's the cost, the financial cost, the emotional cost. And then, so egg donor treatment is when you get the eggs of another woman. So not your partner. And you use your sperm with her eggs and put that embryo into your wife, my, my wife as it was. Um, and you have to kind of get your head around that, which is a lot. So we were preparing to do that. And then we got pregnant naturally. And then we were like, because I'm skipping over one, we got pregnant naturally just after the IVF round finished. And we were like, how does this, how's this happened? So anyway, we went to the first scan. Now, you know what this is like, because you're a dad. So, you know, you go to a scan and the only knowledge I have of what it's like is scenes from a movie where a couple goes and they see the little flashy mm. heartbeat and they hug and they hold hands and they I don't cry. Think that does any justice. They cry with joy and well, it's like I brilliant. Think. Oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah. So we thought that's what we're going into. And we went in and then the woman just goes, what, what are your dates? And we're like, we should be, this is seven weeks. And I said, why? He said, well, it's measuring the size we'd expect at three weeks. She goes, so one of two possibilities here, either your dates are wrong or 
it's a pregnancy loss. And we're like, oh, well, which one is it? Because we're pretty sure our dates aren't wrong. We were recording everything. We knew every time we had sex, we knew when Fiona was ovulating, we knew everything. She goes, she says, what do we do? So well, what we're going to do, we'll bring you back in a week. We'll scan you again. If there's a development in a week, we know that the pregnancy is still ongoing. If there isn't, we'll call it then that it's a, it's a miscarriage. So we were heartbroken. I was meant to be on the Champions League that night. Liverpool were playing Porto or something. And I remember I, I rang the RT producer that morning and said, listen, between me and you, Fiona's about seven weeks pregnant and we're having a scan. On the off chance it doesn't go well, she's going to be in bits. So I don't think it's right for me to go into work. But it turns out I was the one more in bits. She was in bits. We were both in bits. And I rang him afterwards and said, forget about me for tonight. There's no way I can go on air. Um, so we spent that week going, do we grieve the loss of the kid? Do we hang on to slim hope that it might still be it might still be a runner? And then a week later we went back in and they called it miscarriage. And then that was used by the, t- by the consultants at the time to reinforce what they said to us. They said, there's an issue here with your wife's eggs. So that's why we're telling you to do egg donor treatment. So we were really sure that a natural pregnancy wouldn't, be something would be in our future. So then a year later, we got pregnant. Um, so we went into the scan, like very different than the first time because we were kind of going, do we allow ourselves to get excited about this? If we do, are we just setting ourselves up for a massive fall? Yeah. And is this fall going to be harder than every single fall before it? And then we went in and the woman goes, um, don't get worried if I'm silent for ages, but I always stay silent for ages. So just relax. And then she put the thing on Fiona and, and on the screen and within seconds she goes, there's the heartbeat. <laughs> and then the two of us were like, fucking hell. And we're looking at each other and both in tears going, How's, still in disbelief, but still going, we're still early on in the pregnancy here. And this was naturally, yeah? This was the natural one. Sorry, was the one before from IVF? No, that was natural. As we, well. We, yeah, that yeah. was, so, so we're like, okay, um, this is brilliant. But again, we, we know from our experience yeah. at any time this could end. Um, and we were told that if we did get pregnant naturally, there's a higher chance of fetal abnormalities because of some issue with Fiona's eggs that they thought they saw at the time. So every scan we went into throughout that pregnancy, we were bracing ourselves for bad news. But every scan went great. Um, and then she had a baby boy January 27th last year. Um, and it's honestly impossible to put into words. It's just, I don't, I don't have the words. Like what it was like to witness it, to see a baby come out, <laughs> to hold him for the first time, to realise he's healthy, um, and then to be able to share positive news with our family, who'd been in our corner for years, rooting for us, supporting for us, giving us space, giving us encouragement, but always hearing bad news. Then we were able to send the text and the photo. Baby boy was born, eight pound one ounces, healthy as a pig. Fiona's doing great. <laughs> this is it. This is everything we wanted for years, but we're told we probably, there's a good chance we'll never experience it. So I assume every new parent loves their kid more than anything that they've known before. 
because we thought the longer our journey went on and the more knocks we were getting, it, it became increasingly unlikely we'd ever experience parenthood. So then when it happened, like we're nearly 11 months into it now and it's honestly the most amazing thing. It's beyond amazing. This might be a stupid question, but did the IVF help with yours? Or do they know if that helped with yours having a... We, th those are... It, it, the whole area of fertility is really frustrating if you're one of those people who want clear answers. If you want definite percentages or things that are black and white. It, it, the often the question like that, they'll say, well, we don't know for sure. Um, maybe it did something to kickstart the process or to stimulate your wife's body or something, but we don't know. It It is common that people get pregnant naturally when they give up all hope because... It's no stress. Stress is gone. Yeah. The unbelievable pressure that Fiona was putting herself under to eat everything correctly at the right time and the right amounts and avoid certain exercise, certain amounts. And you're, and you're, you're, you're right in everything. Yeah. And when you have sex, it's not sex for pleasure. It's sex to get pregnant, <coughs> different kind of sex. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just different. And then, um, but by the time he came out, we were like, the answers to those questions, we actually don't care anymore. Doesn't matter. We've got a baby. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. We've got the, the whys don't matter anymore. Yeah. It's like we, we have this little fella that we've always wanted. I obviously we knew we, we were having you want, so I was looking up a little bit because I had a feeling this conversation would come up if you're comfortable about it. But I and I could be wrong because Google can tell you the wrong things sometimes. I seen something that like one in four couples will struggle. Yeah. Is that a correct stat? Yeah. Yeah. This is something that I've been trying to I wanted to talk about on the podcast, mm. but I didn't know how to do it. You know what I mean? And like I don't want to just sit down me and Terrence and talk about it, but over the last couple of years I've been noticing it and particularly with you Terence so like your two brothers mm -hmm. both uh, became fathers in the last two years Yeah. and then I saw a load of people then would say to you, when are you going to start when are you you're next and, all. and I remember thinking like that's not very fair on Terence one like he was single and two just even if he wasn't single don't just assume he has to have a child now yeah. because infertility is on the rise it's actually becoming hard to conceive kids these days and then I know a lot of people that are like, do you know what? I actually don't feel like having kids right mm. now and I won't be pressured into it. And that needs to be respected as well. And then on the flip side is some people actually can't conceive kids. Mm. So in the last 14 months, 13, 14 months, I've had three different mates have miscarriages. Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, do you know what? Like, I wonder, do you three know that the other has experienced a miscarriage? Or have you just confined in me for like, do you know what I mean? Are you looking as as a friend, you're just telling me for a bit of like support? And I remember thinking to myself, have you said it to each other? Because yeah. you are experiencing it, I'm not. So I can only be there for you as a friend, but they can be there for you as someone who's experienced it. So I looked that up then as well. And between 20 and 25% of pregnancies in Ireland a year, miscarriage. And that can happen without reason. That can yeah. just happen. Not even a deficiency or an abnormality in your body. It can just happen. And imagine what that does to the woman then, what that does to the man. And I remember thinking like, like if you broke your arm and you're trying to describe the pain to somebody, you'd want to describe it to somebody who has broke their arm as well. Do you know what I mean? So they can relate and be like, yeah, and did this happen to you? Blah, blah, blah. 
why don't we do that with like fertility and trying to conceive because I know people as well who've gone through IVF and the heartbreak they've gone through and the joy it brings to them and then I know people who have had kids on the off chance just happens you know mm. what I mean so I just think it's there's a lot of pressure around and then especially I'm 30 now yeah I already have one but I'm not with my daughter's ma so now in my new relationship it's like oh when are you going to have kids and I'm like well I don't even know if I want to go again I don't know if she wants to go we're both she's 29 I'm 30 does she want to have kids? Like, but no, it's just this pressure. It's put on us. Like, you should be having kids. Well, we're not in a position to have kids. You know what I mean? It's not for everybody. And I just think uh, we need to change. Like, this whole podcast has just been about changing yeah. conversations and narratives that we've had growing up, whether it be about consent or sexual health or drinking or going away to become a footballer. I think as becoming parents, that needs to change as well because... Yeah, one, do you want that? And two, can you? And you need to take that into consideration. Like, so w when we were originally told we couldn't get pregnant naturally, I made a conscious decision then, and Fiona was in on it too, that we wouldn't keep it to ourselves. Loads of couples do that for understandable reasons. They mightn't have people who are supportive. They might be quite private. They might be fearful of judgment. They don't want, they might have some, and, and I can understand this because I was in it, you might have some, weird feeling of inadequacy or shame that why can't I just do the thing that we were led to believe is the most natural thing in the world you, you, you meet someone and and if you want to have a kid you have sex and you have a kid it might take a little bit of what but that's what's going to happen and then you're told between you it's not going to be able to it's not going to happen um and as well from my work as a therapist I, I would work with loads of people who come to speak in therapy about people that did uh, things that they don't tell their friends and family about and just the harmful nature of trying to keep to yourself the stuff you're going through. Y you're not making it easier to deal with. All you're doing is denying yourself the support that's all around you. For understandable reasons, again, you might be fearful of getting slagged or you don't want people to know your business or you don't have someone who you could trust. Maybe you don't know anyone who's been through it. So you think there's no point in talking to them. They're not going to understand. So there's loads of reasons people don't talk. But we did. So all our friends and our families knew from day one that we were going through IVF. So on the days where I was really struggling with it, Fiona wasn't the only person I could talk to. And when she was really lost some days, there'd be some days I can help her, but loads of days I couldn't because I was fucking lost as well. So she could go elsewhere and I was in therapy all the time so I could speak to others. Um, so we were really well supported through the whole thing. But a load of people, like you're just saying, this is a conversation that's kind of new to a lot of people and it's starting to become more common because more people like myself and Fiona are comfortable to share openly what we've gone through. And every time we do, like I, I, I think I put on Instagram first when we got pregnant and I explained a little bit about what we'd been through. The amount of people, like countless, I can't even give a guess as to how many contacted me privately saying we're on that road too. We've been on that road. Or fucking hell, we're about to go on that road. Um, and it was so common. I used to ask them. I, I wouldn't be one for giving advice or anything. I just encouraged them, wished them well. And I'd always ask them, just a matter of interest, have you told many people in your personal life what you've just told me, a stranger? Loads of people would come back and say, no. The, or the, the woman would text me and go, I've told a few people, but my partner, the fella, is, just can't tell his friends. And I'm really worried about him because he's not getting any support. 
he's really finding it difficult, but he's not willing to tell anyone. So it's hard road to be on. It's even harder when you isolate yourself from everyone by not talking about it. But it's understandable not to talk about it because if you're in social circles where no one's gone through this before, you can think, oh, fuck, I don't want us to be the only ones. Mm. But then when you do talk about it, the, the, every single time Fiona said it to a friend, every single friend had an example of someone in their personal life mm. who had been through it. So the more she talked about it, the more she got a sense of how normal and common it is because people were able to tell them of someone who'd gone through it or the person she spoke to was able to say, me too. Well, we've hit the example. You said <coughs> one in four people will experience this. Yeah. There's four of us here, including Owen, yeah. in this studio. And you yeah. would be the one who has experienced that. So we yeah. hit the example there in yeah. a real life scenario. And like, I like mi miscarriages. Like this, this, that statistic came out in the in the repeal referendum. Like it was really common. Like one in four or one in five pregnancies will end in miscarriage, usually before the first twelve weeks. So it's it's a common experience. And a lot of people then don't talk about what it's actually like. Like for us, we had like I said the first appointment, which was the scan. And then the week wait for the second scan. And then you have a conversation, which I didn't know. They send you into another room and go, OK, and this is the language they use. We have to remove the product. Right. So a week ago it was potentially our baby. And now it's product that has to be removed mm. and disposed of. And so like, going, well, what are our options here? How, this is all new to us. So we, you can do some procedure, but that might add to your fertility issues we're like okay forget about that we have enough fertility issues don't be adding to them the other one is just watchful waiting where you just wait and the body for, for the thing yeah. just to naturally come out over the course of several weeks um or you take some kind of a tablet which initiates the process straight away so we went with the tablet option so fiona took a tablet and the instruction was you take the tablet 24 hours later and after she took the second tablet I was at the front door, she was there and we were talking to someone at the front door and she just goes, sorry lads, of the, she, off she went. And she didn't reappear. And I went back to the toilet and she was completely KO'd on the floor, unresponsive. I was saying her name, she, wasn't, she couldn't hear me. She was making this weird sound with her mouth. And I swear to God, I was standing over going, Fucking hell, my wife is dying here on the, on, the, on the floor of the bathroom. And I rang my mate who was a guard who I knew his brother was an ambulance driver and says, tell your brother to send an ambulance over rather than ring 999. I don't know why I thought it did. And he goes, you have to make the call to the ambulance yourself because you have to instruct them where to come. So I said, please come over, will you? And I made the call. The ambulance came and it was during COVID and they let me travel in the ambulance with her. I didn't know whether that was going to be an option. So we went in the ambulance to the hospital and what happened was she just had an extreme reaction to the tablet. Um, and I, I can't remember the medical language, but basically the product passed through her that night, overnight in the hospital. And then the next day when she was coming out, they, they kind of come into you and say, what would you like us to do with the product? I'm like, what? Like, do, are you asking us, do, we, do you want us to take it home? I had no preparation for a question like that, given everything we'd just gone through. And um, I said, I don't know, what, what are the options here? And, and the fella said, well, you know, there's some 
place where they can dispose of it. Like, we'll go with that then. And then you go home and so she had all the physical recovery to go through. The two of us had the emotional recovery to go through on top of then the thing of going, this might never happen for us now. Um, and it wasn't until we went through it that we thought miscarriage isn't just something that just happens and you're told news and you get on with it. Like there's a process and, and there's things that happen and the woman goes through a hell of a lot and you as the partner go through loads as well. And it's compounded then if you're a couple that decide not to tell your friends you're going through it. But we told friends. And then so many of my mates were able to say, we had a miscarriage too. And I said, did you? Why didn't you just fucking say it? So well, my wife didn't want people knowing about it or I didn't think you'd want to know about it. Or when do you bring that up in the pub with a group of lads? You just, it happens, you just get on with it. Like, it's really, really hard. Because there's no, you're not told, like if we were, to, Fiona said this phrase recently, if we were told, you're going to swim through shit for ages, but you're going to get your happy ending. The swimming through shit would be manageable. Mm. But when you're swimming through it, you don't know if you're going to indefinitely swim through it and have nothing to show for it. So every time they ask you to pump up six or eight grand for a round, you go, well, this is the last one because this is going to work. But it doesn't work. So you go, okay, we're back into the well, go again. Doesn't work. Back and we'll go again. And you're like, should we have a discussion about how many times we should go? Do we need to stop? Do we need to give up? No one can answer those questions for you. You just, you just try and swim through it and hope that the ending is the one you want. When you did eventually conceive, had you given up the thought of becoming a parent? Or did you just say, we're giving up on IVF, we're just going to try natural? It, it, it was weird. So I, I go to therapy every week and that was a godsend to the whole process because I was able to, I had somewhere to go. I was each week able to go, do I need to have a chat with Fiona? Do I need to say something here? What actually... Would I say if I could say anything? Is now the time to say it? Do we just keep going? What's my role here? What's the best way for me to be a partner here? What's required of me here? And again, there's no there's no obvious answer to that. You just every week you go, well, what feels like the next right thing to do? And each time we kind of assess where we are and goes, what feels like the next right thing to do? And the answer was always, we go again. Um, I never got near a point where I was ready to stop going again. We, we were just prepared to go, okay, we were told we can't do it naturally, what's the next option? IVF, grand. Told IVF won't work, next option, egg donor, let's explore that. And just before we started doing that, got pregnant naturally. So like, every time, like, we have them, we could be walking in the park or holding them, putting them to bed, giving them a bath, feeding them, watching them crawl now or it's constantly in our heads going like he's a little miracle. Every kid is. Every kid is amazing. The process of birth is brilliant. It, it's mind boggling how the whole thing works. But then when you spend years going we we might never get to this point and then you're at the point and it's this happy healthy little fella smiles all the time you're going this is beyond words. Um, so yeah this is our first Christmas. He was with Santa the other day. Didn't give a shit. <laughs> 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 Go 
completely unimpressed by the fella. <laughs> <laughs> Indifferent to the whole thing. <laughs> when you see Christmas morning when you're bleeding, you move heaven and Eric to give him all the presents he wants and he plays with the box he plays with the remote control <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> more heartbreaking but like they'll be, they'll be, you'll get loads of messages now on the back of this going oh, I was yeah. I, I, I know what it's like to have to watch my partner have a miscarriage mm. I know what it's like to have a miscarriage I know what it's like to be in those consultant rooms and be told news you don't want to hear mm. or you know what it's like to just to be the one around the table where everyone's talking about their kids and you're the one thinking, I might never have a seat at this table. Or like, I think girls have this more than lads, constant invites, invites to baby showers. Yeah. Or, or WhatsApp groups where there's baby photos rattling all over the shop. I'm not in any WhatsApp groups where loads of lads are sharing baby photos. It's just not a thing me or my mates do. But Fiona for years was. So it's just difficult if you're the couple who are in the shit. Well, that's why I wanted to talk about because mm. I knew, so, as I said, I had three mates that had recently, recently enough, gone through miscarriages, but one of them, I knew had gone through a miscarriage and I remember one of the lads, we were all out together and one of the lads was like, what's the story with you? You must be shooting blanks. When, when are you yeah. going to have kids? And I remember yeah. thinking like, don't, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I think it's an age thing. I think when you're a teenager, things like that are just what you say. Yeah. If you're in your early 20s and you don't know anyone who's been pregnant, you've never been pregnant or in a relationship where you're pregnant, you don't know any better. So everything's a laugh and a joke. But then you start hanging around with people who have go through it or you're at a stage of life where you, you want to have a kid or people around you are having kids or it's expected of you to have a kid. Then you become aware that it's, it's tricky, that there's certain things that are complicated and that those phrases are quite insensitive. Mm. Um doesn't mean people don't say them all the time but you just become used to I think I think you start to box clever yeah but I just think that we need to be aware of it that it is an issue yeah and uh, people going through it need to be aware that it's actually very common yeah so the more people they do make aware of it I think the example you gave there was someone goes oh well, I know someone else who's yeah. gone through that and yeah, yeah. Like, I'm sure you know plenty of people yeah. as well Terrence that have yeah. gone through it you know what I mean and oh, then yeah. I know people that were in your situation as well, Richie, you know what I mean? That went through IVF and they eventually got what they wanted. They got yeah. the product at the yeah. end yeah. or whatever and you see them running around now and you're like, do you know what? Like, it doesn't matter what the financial cost was. You can't put a price on them chasing that show. You kind of forget road. like we, when he was born and you hold him and then you look at Fiona and she's holding him and she has this smile that she's, she's never had before or this contentment or this feeling that you, you can only get when you're holding your own baby and you've been through years of wanting it. Um, I just forgot about all the other stuff. It just becomes, it doesn't matter. It just mm. becomes, oh, that's a backstory to this, but the story doesn't matter anymore. This is all that matters. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's like I mean? a callback to that singer, what we had at the start. Do you not feel that it's hard to remember your life before you or that? So you feel like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I was 21 when I became a dad and I remember being 22 and I couldn't tell you what my teenagers were like yeah. I was like I don't know what life was like before this it's just gone and then a friend of mine had twins recently enough and he was saying the same and I don't know that, that could be the insomnia as well for him but like <laughs> it, it's it just everything changes like we, we earlier we were talking about maybe going you was talking about a gig on Friday and said would you go? I was like no I'm a baby now it just, it's just, 
it's just it's a different consideration um on on everything <laughs> it's like if i'm going to be away from the gaff there's going to be a reason for me to be away from the gaff if i'm going to go away for a night um it better be for a really good reason because what i'm leaving like really matters so yes and i never thought of that before before get offered to go to gig yeah, go <laughs> go to england for my yeah we'll go for a weekend you you just you go with whatever's the next thing you know, it'll go whatever but now it's just different it's just it's amazing like I love it I can see how hard you'll find to find words for it it's, it's, and it's yeah. the same with most people that, like most people if you ask them they will say oh you'll just have to experience it yeah. because I can't yeah. know what I, know. I feel you or, know I think the like the actual birth itself that is like because you, you see in the film and like oh yeah but like that in itself you're like Whoa, like it's it's mental. I know. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, yeah, grand. There's a load of machines going off. There's there's instructions from the doctor. There's the pain that the woman goes through. You can hear that. Next of all, this thing comes out and it springs open, and it's like, there's your child. They're wrapping a blanket and giving to you. You're sitting there sobbing, crying. The doctor just walks off, and I'm like, right, so that's it now. And they go off and do it again in the yeah. next room <laughs> with the next, and you're going, you're you, 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 and then you, you speak to the staff, and she goes, yeah, we had seven births last night. Yeah. How many were you? Oh, I did the seven. You think you're the <laughs> only times. dad in the world, and it keeps going. But you're not like, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I just think it's mad. They give you the baby, and they're like, right, grand, and then like the next day, you're like, right, see you later, mate. There's the door. <laughs> you're like, wait, hang on for a minute. Wait, wait the instructions. Yeah, like we what? were like after it happened. Warranty, like, can I come back in thirty days and bring this back? After it happened, we were like, almost like, does everyone know? But we need to talk. But does every a baby just comes out? Yeah, <laughs> and then they move their hands and they look and they. It's the most insane thing you'll ever see. I used to walk in the it, rotunda, Richie. Yeah, and like I mean, I'd be in there on a Saturday morning after being out on a Friday night. And you'd be in and you'd be doing whatever you had to do under like, oh, you had to get out of here now because I used to walk in like the operating theatre. So you'd be like, oh, for fuck's sake, bleeding and you're, you're groggy and you're walking out. Next of all, like a woman gets rushed in with a bump and now later she comes out and she has a baby in her arms. You know what I mean? have to get in a section and I'm like, wow, like that's mental. Mm -hmm. Like that, she went in there, a woman and came out with man. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're like, right. Like it's the, it's the most life-changing thing. Like I spoke earlier about going from being a footballer to a former footballer going, my world is over. The new world is just unrecognisable. I won't survive it. Then go from someone who drank the way I did to someone who tried to live sober. It's going, that's too big a change. I don't know how this is going to work. But then going from someone who's not a dad to being a dad. Um, this is the first one where there's a positive change. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's you know what I mean? Like, thankfully, finally, fucking cards are falling my way. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love it. Love it. Yeah. Richie, we're saying that. So what, you are a footballer, pundit, psychotherapist, uh, what would we say then? Sex education advocate, IVF advocate, father, yeah. All these things that you can give a talk on. I talk some shite now, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything that you know now that you wish I'd have known at the start of any of those? Wow, what a question. Um... I, I, I used to think I, I'd love if I knew my career was going to be short, cut short because I would have enjoyed it or appreciated it more. But that's not the way life works. Mm -hmm. um, 
and like going through the journey of trying to become a dad, I, I thought I'd love if I just knew it was going to happen so I wouldn't have all those nights of worrying and being lost and, and all over the shop or in my early days of recovery or my ending days of drinking, I'd love if I, I'd love if I knew that I'd be able to sit in a chair like this now and just be really comfortable. Um, probably the one thing behavior wise, I wish I did sooner in my life was talk about what I'm going through. Um, but my really shaping like influential years of going from a teenager to a young adult took place in the Millwall dressing room. And that's a strict kind of culture and a code of conduct about what it's like to be a man. And you don't talk about stuff. You front up as if you're the big man. So it doesn't matter how much abuse you get from the crowd, whether you're dropped, whether you're injured, whether you're homesick, whether you're top of the league, bottom of the league, you just front up as if you've got this. Um, which is a grand way to live if you never hit a bump in the road. But it's when you start hitting bumps and you think, well, I'm signed up to this code of conduct which tells me I can't ask for help. I can't be honest. Then life becomes a lot more difficult. So if I could have my time again, I'd start talking openly sooner. But if you'd have told me back in the day to talk openly, I would have gone, that's not what lads do. Get the fuck away from me. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. Richie. We've talked enough bollocks today. Oh, fucking right. <laughs> <laughs> I anyone still listening to this? Ah, the depth. No, yeah, the Richie, it's, it's been a pleasure. I've uh, really enjoyed this chat. Have you had you want to plug? Nothing at all. Nothing at all. Wish everyone a happy new year and hope it's a nice, happy, healthy one for everyone. And we swear this isn't recorded before Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> but happy new year to everybody and we hope you all have a great one. All right, take us out home. Boom. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app. What you waiting for? Put your back in it. Just a little more. Try your way in it now. Fill your body up in Walk it high and low. When you finish that. The Hip Knocker. Come down.